This episode is brought to you by Rune. Rune 1.8 is an immersive new music experience featuring a new look, new intelligence, and new features designed for music fanatics. Click the link in the description box below for more information. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. With me this time out is Professor Ibn Sujan from Six Moons. Yeah, right, Professor. <laughs> <laughs> Sujan, what are we talking about this week? I think we should start with the uh, NLEOM M21R, mm -hmm. the amplifier that you recently reviewed. Yep. And your initial reservations about accepting the assignment because this is an expensive amplifier with yes. just 25 watts per channel. And you were wondering whether that was sufficient and would the sound be sufficiently good for the 5,000 euro price tag to make up for the fact that it is so low power. And I saw that you just recently put up that review. Yes, I made a so video. So I think yeah, we can yeah. use that as a sort of a, a jumping off point on our perceptions of power and how much power we are actually listening to or consuming with the kind of speakers that you and I have on our hands. Mm. And what do you and I mean when we say we listen quietly or we're listening at normal levels mm. or we're getting what we consider to be loud? What does that actually mean? Right. Yes. Yes, because you've reviewed the Enlium AMP23R as well. Um, Correct. So we both have experience with this thing. So you're right. I was a bit hesitant. I was unsure as to how well it would play, but I did have what I call sensitive speakers in-house. I had the Klipsch Forte 4, I've got the Zoo Soul 6. So I knew that I would be pretty safe with 25 watts per channel, um, even if it didn't play as well with the stand mounts that I've kind of mainly used in the past, specifically the Wilson tune tot and the Kef LS50 Meta. So, yeah. So remind us all what happened when you played your Wilsons, the tune tots, which I believe are somewhere around 83 or 84 dB efficient. Yeah, something like that. It's, I mean, this is a thing that we have to quote. I mean, from, uh, I had a conversation with John DeVore via email about speaker sensitivity because I'd found that I was using the terms efficiency and sensitivity interchangeably, and they're not the same thing. Um, and really, when we talk about the sort of dB rating of a speaker, we're talking about its sensitivity. But also, in you know, efficiency has to factor in the impedance of the speaker. So the tune tot is, yeah, something like 85 dB, 86, but it's an 8-ohm speaker, which means nominally anyway so which means it's pro it's a little bit easier to drive than an a speaker of the same sensitivity with a 4 ohm nominal impedance mm -hmm. so with with the wilsons like the the enlium sounded beautiful like truly beautiful above the waist but down 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 low with the with the bass it just sort of it lacked the muscle and the weight you know you get from a more powerful amp like a hegel or something like that okay but while we're still on that subject of that, it was beautiful above the waist, mm. and it also went loud enough, 
Do you remember roughly what the volume level was on the Enlium? Like, were you at 10.30? Were you at like two o'clock when things got loud on the Wilsons? I can tell you with any speaker that I connected the Enlium to, I never, ever went past 10 o'clock on the volume dial. Couldn't even, I could never get to the sort of midnight position. Not at all. It was, you know, there was definitely enough. I guess what we're referring to here is gain, aren't we? I mean, this is it was definitely voltage gain. yeah, voltage gain. Well, it was definitely loud enough, yes, with any speaker. I mean, obviously with the zoos, I you know, I didn't get quite I probably maybe got to eight o'clock or nine o'clock, so I'm way down on that volume dial. Right. So now we should let our listeners know what do we mean when we say low levels, medium levels, loud levels. Mm. We should tell our readers that it's very simple to download an SPL app on a on a smartphone or in an iPad or etc. So with the SPL meter that you have installed on your let's say smartphone, what what levels do you measure when you consider the sound to be normal, like your normal listening levels? Neither party levels nor whisper levels. Mm. I would say I think it's around 70 dB, 70, 71, 72. Now, when you, say, when you say that, do you mean peaks or do you mean average level? Average level. Okay, so your peaks get how loud? Well, it probably went 76, 77, something like that. But uh, yeah, average 70, 72. Because the way that my SPL meter works, it, mm. it will mark the loudest level. So if on my SPL meter it says 70, that's the loudest it ever measured in that listening session. Mm. And then I have to go and look what, what the lowest level was, and I see if 70 was the highest, the mm. lowest was somewhere between 45 and 50, if the music that I was just listening to had 20 dB of recorded dynamic range. Right. I mean, yes, the dynamic range will obviously push the peaks and troughs higher and lower, respectively. Um, but, yeah, I, I guess... I sort of focused on the average because it was interesting actually because with the with the soul I'm talking about the soul 6 and the Enlium here loud for me well if we're talking what what is what I consider to be loud we're talking an average of 75 to 77 db and that's obviously we're talking about me sitting in the listening seat so I'm right. sat uh probably about two and a half meters from the speakers so that's also important as well you know that's a, because distance from the speaker also affects the measurement but I guess the the reason I uh, thought it was the uh, the loud level was interesting, seventy five to seventy seven, is really that's what I clocked in my local coffee shop. I took the uh, SPL meter out th there and measured seventy five dB when the machines were going making coffee. So, and that's a, gla a very glassy room, hard floors, um, a, a marble counter. So, it you know loud for me is it doesn't take a lot for me to kind of go oh that's loud. Correct, because I think that's where we are headed with today's feature mm -hmm. is that a lot of people have erroneous assumptions of what SPL on a meter they are actually listening to. Mm. So I looked it up and a, a good rule of thumb is that if one sits three meters away from one's speaker, mm -hmm. one should subtract 10 dB from its one watt, one meter rating. So if your Wilson's, for example, rate mm -hmm. at 85 dB mm -hmm. and you're sitting three meters away, yep. that one watt 
input at three meters would generate 10 dB less than the listed rating. So instead of 85, you'd be at 75. Right. And hello, Dolly. You just told us that when things get really loud to your ears, you're somewhere be you're below 80. You're somewhere around 75 to 77 dB. Definitely below 80 okay. for sure, yes. So hello. What that means, what we just found out, is that, that you are not listening to more than two watts average. Correct. Yep. Which is which is which is why the Enlium was no. a twenty-five watt into eight ohm rating is more than sufficiently powerful for all of John Darko's needs in your room, which is about I believe five by six meters. Correct. And you're yes. sitting about two and a half meters away. Correct. So even your least efficient speaker, mm -hmm. the Wilson TuneTart, which is a small two-way ported monitor. Yeah. Doesn't need more power, more wattage than the 25 watts that you had. Not if we're just talking raw SPL, no. Exactly. So as, as we now continue to talk about what does one get sonically more with a more powerful amplifier, uh, I wanted to inject in both my upstairs and downstairs listening room, mm -hmm. the upstairs is four by eight meters, and the downstairs is six by eight meters, so downstairs is bigger. When I listen quietly, I measure 45 dB in my seat, and my seat is about three meters. Now, that to me is quiet. Uh -huh. That means my wife next door, one room over, can't really hear me. Okay. When I listen to what I consider to be normal, I listen about at 55 to 60 dB. And what I consider to be loud gets to about 70, 75 dB. And those are peaks. And now I should also say that when I measure my ambient noise, which is the noise that the SPL meter will measure when nothing is playing, mm -hmm. and it will only pick up a refrigerator or some air conditioning or my breathing, mm -hmm. that I measure plus minus 20 dB. So either you breathe really quietly or your room is really quiet. <laughs> no, the room is really, really quiet, but I live no. very, very rural. What's normal, and I've mm. lived in less rural environments, what's normal seems to be plus minus 30 dB. And if I was living in an inner city and I had thin windows and that there was a lot of traffic, it might be 40, it might be 45 dB peak yes. of yeah. ambient noise. So that means that any music signal that is below that ambient noise, I won't be able to hear. Correct. Or most of the time I won't. Which means now, obviously, when I say I listen quietly, I have to start higher than I'm starting today now in my house. Mm. So the ambient noise floor in my room is between 35 and 37. So it's higher than yours. And what did you say your low listening level was? Shujan? 45. 45. So for me, a low listening would be around 60. Okay. And your, I think your highest level was probably on par with my medium level. So, and I don't think I listen loud at all, but I think you're saying you listen to music even more quietly than I do. It seems that way. Yeah. And to qualify that, I was looking up a few very, very basic facts because I really suck at math. So this is just very basic. <laughs> 
But I used to play in a symphony orchestra and my brother and my sister still do professionally. And I was mm -hmm. looking at the legal limit for symphony orchestra working today. Uh -huh. It's called a workplace restrictions relative to the noise levels that employees are exposed to on a permanent basis. Right. So today, if you're playing in a symphony orchestra, that level is 90 dB. Oof. Okay. If it gets louder, the employees, which means the players, can sue the orchestra. And I know for a fact there have been incidents where, for example, a viola player would sue the orchestra for loss of hearing. He developed tinnitus because he was sitting right in front of the trombones. And when the trombones, all four or eight of them together, mm. play one of those fanfares that come at a, at a climax during a symphonic uh, piece, it gets insanely loud. And this guy started losing his hearing to the degree that he could no longer hear himself play. So he basically lost his job. Oh he sued God. the orchestra and he won. Mm. Okay. I was also reading up that prolonged exposure to plus 80 dB, now we're saying prolonged, not mm -hmm. peaks, but nonstop, is considered dangerous. Mm -hmm. But here is where I think a lot of confusion comes in, because when you go to the home theater mags, mm -hmm. and they're invoking the THX reference level, do you know what the max THX reference level is for the main channels in a movie theater? It's going to be over 100. It's 105 dB. And you know what it is for the, for the low-frequency effects channel, which is the subwoofer channel? Oh, I wouldn't have a clue about that. It's 115 dB. Now, that, that to me, is absolutely insane. And I remember mm. way back when we used to still go to the movie theater, and you see an action flick, like you know a Terminator, something along those lines, and the movie is maybe an hour and a half, maximally two hours. Yeah. That somewhere past the midpoint, suddenly the sound keeps getting louder. The explosions get ever louder. And you notice that you're getting a little bit of hearing fatigue. And then 15 minutes before the climax, the sound gets louder again to, to make up for the listening fatigue. But this is a very, very unhealthy way of exposing ourselves to loud sound. But if people mm. reference that, against what they should be listening to at home and what they think is normal, then I think that we are being miseducated. The THX levels are unhealthily loud. And they are actually beyond what today is considered legal in a workplace. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, I always find if I go to a mainstream movie theater, like a big sort of multiplex, it's too loud. It just drives me crazy. But I kind of I never, no, never sit anywhere near the, near the front. But then again, you've got all the rear channel stuff as well. But um, uh, independent movie theater, theaters here in Berlin, not that I've been to one for a long time, but um, they're generally much better because they don't have the money for a big sound system or a fancy one, right? So it's just normal level. Thank you very much, which is great. But yeah, well, yeah it's just too loud. Okay, so let's, let's make a roundabout. And mm -hmm. we go back to saying that we've just established that you and I even though you listen louder, apparently, than I do, yep. that none of us, with any of the speakers that we have at hand, would need more, well, let's say our average listening levels probably don't eclipse two or three watts. So if you build in some, some headroom for peaks, especially in the low bass, if we have 25 watts like you had with the Enlium, 
You have more than you will ever need. You have plenty of built-in headroom that you will most likely never exceed. So now the question would be, then why do people want to buy 200-watt amplifiers and why do manufacturers make them and tell us that maybe even one kilowatt isn't quite enough? But hang on a sec, though, because we have, I think we have to be a little bit careful here to separate out the difference between power and gain. Because an amplifier could sound loud to us through the speakers, but not be all that powerful, as in it, power really what I'm referring to is the current delivery of the amplifier, because power is the product of current and voltage, right? Exactly. That's right. where I was actually. That's where Sorry. I was going to. <laughs> Sorry. It, no, this is this is perfect. This is perfect. And and I have actually uh, a visual example that I encountered just recently, mm. and that is that a company in Poland called Hem H E M have their own brand called Ferrum Audio, and they were famous for actually building the MyTech product until probably last year. Yes. Now the first product is called the Hypsos. And that is sort of shorthand for hybrid power supply. And it's an outboard power supply that is unique in that you can adjust its output voltage by like 0.1 volt increments anywhere from, I don't know even where they start. It might be 2 volts all the way up mm -hmm. to 30 volts. So you can drive a little phono stage and you can drive a pair of active speakers. Okay. Mm -hmm. They have a unique feature that they call sweet spot tuning. And what that means is that mm. if a manufacturer lets them know that their piece of equipment is safe to be driven with a voltage from two, let's say from 20 volts to 26 volts, and it's safe anywhere in mm. there, that with this particular device, you can try out all of those in-between voltages and see what happens to the sound. And if they have a display, and the display will read out mm. the watts, the, amp the amperes in current, and the volts. And you will see that the watts don't ah. change because we just said that the watts are current times voltage. So as you reduce the voltage, since the watts don't change, obviously the current has to go up. Yes. Okay? And as you increase the voltage, the current goes down. Everything sounds exactly yep. the same loudness but the sound changes. And what I learned with mm -hmm. quite a number of different devices is that as the current increases and the voltage goes down, the sound gets tighter, it gets more articulate, mm. the bass gets drier and better controlled, and overall the sound gets a little leaner. And the more voltage I add, so I reduce the current, mm. the warmer and thicker and softer the sound gets. So more current has a direct impact, even on a small component like a DAC or a small desktop type of ampli you know, active speaker. Mm -hmm. Now, when I'm looking at the NLEOM and I open it up, I see that all it's got in its output stage is one output device per channel. There's one for the plus and there's one for the minus. That's one channel, one Exicon MOSFET. Yes. Now, if I open up my 30-watt pass labs, what is it, the 30.8 XA amplifier, mm -hmm. it's got 20 output devices per channel. Even though on mm -hmm. paper, it's more or less the same power. It's 30 watts versus 25 watts. 
but it's got 20 mm -hmm. times more output devices per channel. So logic tells us that when it comes to current delivery, even if the voltage is, I mean, if the output voltage is the same, the current portion of mm. it will be a lot higher, right? Mm. That amplifier will deliver more mm -hmm. current than the Enlium. And so when I now drive right. a big speaker with a big bass system, with a big woofer that might be harder to control, I definitely hear that I have a 200 watt uh, power amplifier with the same output devices as mm -hmm. the Enlium. The Enlium has two per channel. The monoblocks I'm talking about, the, the kinky monoblocks, they have eight of the same mm -hmm. Exicon MOSFETs. And they produce 250 mm -hmm. watts per side, so 10 times as much. Now, the Enlium sounds better above the waist, like you notice with the Wilson, yes. but below the waist, mm. I would say maybe below the knees. <laughs> In the low bass, like I'm talking maybe 60 hertz down, you know, the mid bass and low bass. Yep. Yes, I notice more control, more authority. And especially when there's low bass speeds, like there is on some of the ambient or techno or electronica that I like, definitely the, mm. the more powerful amplifier is superior. The flip side, unfortunately, is that in the mid-range, mm. in the vocal range, and in the treble, the smaller amplifier that is less complicated on the inside, it has less stuff, less devices, less output devices, mm. less uh, storage capacitors, fewer resistors, etc. It sounds more mm. open. It sounds more transparent. Mm. The colors are even fuller, less monochromatic. And I believe that is something yes. that you noticed when you compared the Enlium to your powerful Hegel. Correct. Yes. So you're saying, let me find my, I can just recap here, that the Hegel would have more current on tap because it has, I'm, I'm going to guess, more output devices on the, mm -hmm. on the output stage. But you're saying that a lower current amplifier won't have the control or the articulation necessarily of a higher current amplifier, but because of this, the greater simplicity of a lower, say, a lower output staged circuit, you you pick up in other areas like tone color and timbre and things like that. Yes, I would say that generally, apples being apples, that is the case. Now, obviously, a, a really gifted right. designer can make a powerful amplifier and reference the sound of that powerful amplifier to his least powerful amplifier and make sure that his most powerful amplifier still has everything else the same, but then mm. has some extras, like even better control in the bass, but it doesn't lose anything else. Mm. But I would also say that now we are talking proportionally or disproportionately more money. And I also know this to be the case because the people that built the Enlium, they used to have a brand called Bakun. And mm -hmm. the most powerful amplifier they ever built was a 100-watt amplifier. Based on the same design mm -hmm. philosophy that is in your Enlium, they just needed more bits and bobs to produce more power. They also had one at 50 watts. Mm -hmm. And I reviewed and heard them all. And by far the best sounding one was the little guy that you heard. So even those people that have a really, really good circuit, even they, at least in the past, couldn't make their most powerful amplifier as good in the areas where the Enlium excels. So it doesn't seem to be easy. It's not to say that it's not possible. Like you said, we need to be very careful mm. here that we don't sort of discredit or malign 
makers of powerful amplifiers. That would be ridiculous. But I think it is fair to say that if you know that the speakers that you have don't consume more than, let's say, 5 to 10 watts when it gets loud to your ears, that if you have a certain amount of money to spend and you go to a particular brand that you like, doesn't matter what it is, Jeff Rowland or Krell or Rotel, Arkham, you're smarter, you're most likely better off and get better sound if you go to their lower power model. You know, this situation actually reminds me of portable players because portable players aren't very beefy in their output. They're not very good at driving high impedance headphones or hard to drive headphones. So for the longest time, I've been saying to people, like, if you get a portable player, make sure you buy a headphone that best matches the portable player, which is the inverse of what we're told as beginners is we, you know, you must really get the amplifier to match your transducer. But I guess with the case of the little Enlium, the 25 Watter, we're at a situation now where you could, if you really like the sound of the amp, and I do and you do, it, it's, it's a similar situation, isn't it, where you would probably choose your speaker based upon the amplifier's output, rated output. Correct. But not just that, because we just said that even with the mm. speaker efficiencies that you and I have on hand, which are anywhere between 84 for your Wilson, I have an equivalent speaker that is 83. Yep. And my most efficient mm -hmm. one is like you, is the, the Soul 6 from Zoo, which they rate at like 99 yep. or 100. Right. So in that yep. range, yep. I know I never need more than 25 watts, no matter what. So now what I'm looking at, I'm looking at not just the, the rated sensitivity spec, but I'm also looking at the impedance versus phase plot to see mm -hmm. how does the speaker behave in the base, let's say like below 100 hertz. Because if, there, if, right. if it encounters low impedance or because it's a ported speaker, it, it shows what they call the saddle response, right? Which is... It looks like a saddle. Mm -hmm. It has these two high peaks, which relate to the yes. tuning frequency of the port. And if the speaker is called mm -hmm. 8 ohms nominal, those peaks can sometimes be 50 ohms. That's where there's a resonance. So resonance mm -hmm. means that with very, very little input, something gets really loud. Right? You put a little strike mm -hmm. on, on a bell, and the thing starts to go off. It doesn't need a whole lot of input. Mm -hmm. So those peaks relate to where that speaker resonates. They are very, very high. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that a higher power amplifier that has more headroom seems to control those resonant peaks better. So instead of the bass being slightly boomy, whenever we sort of hit that area where it has these big resonances, it doesn't boom. Because mm -hmm. I've in the past sometimes made the mistake of accusing a speaker's port to have room issues, because that's what it sounded mm -hmm. like. And then I would put mm -hmm. a much more powerful amplifier in there, not change anything else. Speakers would still be sitting exactly where they were sitting before, and suddenly the boom went away. And it's like, hello, I just made a mistake. It wasn't that the port mm. was the problem. It was that the amplifier that I had chosen couldn't properly control that particular bass alignment. So it's not just a matter of the speaker sensitivity, but also about how, quote-unquote, difficult or easy its base array, woofer or woofers plural, is. 
And to be honest there, I'm not mm. exactly sure what all the different variables are, but it seems to be impedance fluctuations, and it also seems to be phase angles. So if we have steep phase mm. angles, which is what John Atkinson often talks about in the stereophile measurements, where steep phase angles mm. and impedance fluctuations coincide, he will actually point out that this makes it hard to drive and you will want a more powerful, more current, able amplifier. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess my experience with the Wilsons definitely tells me that they prefer the Hegel amplifier. You know, as uh, in, to in totality, if I'm having to sort of weigh up all the different qualities that I enjoy, I mean, yeah, the Enlium has some beautiful traits, but I can't suffer that compromise down below, especially for electronic music, because you need the control and you don't want the speaker sort of going off <laughs> on its own thing. I didn't know that about the impedance plots and the saddle um, sort of dip in the in the in the low end. So that's interesting. That's uh, that's new to me. Even though I do have a look at those impedance plots on stereophile from time to time. Well, I was more educated about this by Michael Burson, the head designer at uh, mm -hmm. Burson and Avik and Anzus in Denmark, because he mm. changed the way that he built the motor of his drivers and the upshot or the, 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 the side benefit of the changes that he's made is that despite having to use a port, the impedance fluctuations are much, much lower than they are with conventional drivers. Mm. So if his main impedance is 8 ohms, the highest that the impedance will rise may be just 16 ohms. Instead of going up to 50, mm. it really only doubles. And then as you get to a more expensive right. version of the driver, there's even less difference. So even though there is a port, the usual port behavior in the impedance curve is much minimized. And he explained to me, and I heard it, that that makes the speaker much less critical to drive. And yes, there will be less room interactions, even with the rear firing port. So the smart speaker shopper will obviously want to look at the sensitivity rating, because the more sensitive mm. the speaker is, the less power it will need to play as loud as you want it to. So you can save money. Mm -hmm. You don't have to buy a big engine. A small engine will be just as good. But you will also want to look at the impedance curve if it is published to see whether it's more or less linear mm. or whether it's really non-linear and where 8 ohms normal is really a joke because it's only 8 ohms at two or three spots on the curve. And most of the time it's like over and under by quite a lot. Mm. That makes a difference. I always thought there were some rules governing um, you know, the, the, the calculation of a speaker's nominal impedance, that it couldn't dip, dip below a, like a certain threshold and it couldn't go above a th certain threshold. But I, I really don't know what that <laughs> calculation is. But I've heard... Um, Andrew Jones talked about that with respect to his uh -huh. ELAC designs. That if he says it's an eight ohm speaker, I think he says it doesn't. It never goes below five point something ohms, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, I don't know about the maximum though. I mean, I guess not every manufacturer publishes an impedance plot of their speakers because some really look a lot worse than you you would want them to. 
Mm. It's usually <clears throat> when I review speakers and it's not published, it's usually something that I request that they send me. And if they refuse to send me, I think mm. that in itself tends to be a sign. Possibly. I, I, yeah, you know, it's hard because to know. That usually that should be part of the design brief. You know, when the designer designs, his, mm. he looks at all the different ways his speaker behaves and one part of the behavior is the impedance curve. Now that we have talked just a little bit about loudness, what you and I consider loud mm. and how much power that consumes, we should also talk about recorded dynamic range. Because I remember when I was still a hi-fi shopper, pretty much uneducated, I would just walk into a hi-fi shop mm. and I would be told that in order to reproduce dynamic, recorded dynamics realistically, I needed like 500 watts and a thousand watts would even be better. And it, would, it was explained mm. to me that that was what was required. And didn't I want my music to sound realistic? Now, of course I want Mr. Salesman. Well, here is the amplifier that you need. Okay, and that was a, a, that was a bit of misinformation because I use the software player AudioVarner on my iMac Mm -hmm. And that happens to have a meter. You can turn the meter on and see what the recorded dynamic range is of the piece of music that you're listening to. And I've seen that if I listen to what I would call overcooked rock or pop, that mm. the recorded dynamic range may not be more than 6 dB. So the meter will flicker close to zero, and it will flicker back and forth between like minus six and zero. And that's the kind of music that I mm. would sort of describe as wall of sound. It's always loud. Everything mm -hmm. is equally loud. And after a while, it gets really, really boring because there's no, it's like somebody talking monotone without any fluctuation, but and just loud. loud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've got a lot of music like that here. Not all of it's like that, but some of it is. Um, I don't love it any less, but I, I am aware now, now that I'm better informed that, you know, the, the dynamic range isn't great. And I can see it on the, like, you, you've got the, the uh, Audiovana software that tells you that. I mean, I have the NAD M10 V2 here right now, and I can watch the, the sort of needle meters, the VU meters going backwards and forwards. And so, yeah, on sort of dynamically compressed tracks, that needle won't move very much. It'll kind of hang on a certain point and then just twitch around that certain point. And then obviously more dynamic music, it goes, you know, fluctuates further in either direction. Okay, so now we have an interesting point to make, right? Now we make the point that mm -hmm. each 3 dB increase in loudness requires twice the power. Okay, so we just said that a lot of mm. the overcooked dynamically compressed rock or pop or whatever it might be, we're not going to just dump on pop and rock, don't have more than 60 B of difference. So if our speaker consumes, let's say, three watts of power when we think it is loud in the seat, mm. and now we have a 60 B peak on top of that, we need... Mm -hmm twice and twice the power. So three, we double that, we get to six watts, we double that, we get to 12 watts. So hello. When it gets really mm -hmm. loud, 
in our seat, and we don't want it any louder, we just went from consuming mm. 3 watts to consuming 12 watts. So we're still, we're still right. nowhere That's near the 100 or 500 or 1,000 that I was told as a very young man I needed to reproduce realistic dynamic range because that realistic dynamic range is actually not on that particular track or on that recording. Mm. Now, on my good recordings, when I say good, I mean recordings with wide recorded dynamic range, let's say like mm -hmm. an ECM, you know, the Manfred Eichner mm -hmm. uh, recording label in Germany. I know, I'm aware of ECM. ECM. Yeah, they're usually all 30 dB. Wow, okay, that's, that's seriously you know? dynamic, okay. No, that's the recorded dynamic range. And what's more, mm. I may actually see that when it maxes out, it doesn't max out at zero. It maxes out at maybe minus mm. 10. That whole right. recording is made to leave a lot of headroom. It never sort of touches the digital clipping point. So obviously, if I listen to that recording and I want the same level of peaks at my ear that my compressed pop yep. recording produces, I now need to play the yep. whole system. I need to turn the volume control up to make up for the fact that right, the medium recorded level is lower. Okay. Sure, but if it's 30 dB, Sajan, does that mean you, so that's that's 30 dB is 10 lots of 3 dB. So is that a doubling 10 times? Well, it's 30 dB minimal, right? It's okay. when it gets, re so we were talking about compression in dynamics means that it never gets quiet. The guy talks monotone and he talks loud all the time. Yeah, yeah. Now, if we have more recorded dynamic range, we can't go beyond zero. We can't go beyond max. Right. We go the other way. We get more mm. quiet so that the difference between the quietest and loudest point, that difference gets, gets spread apart. It gets wider. Yes, right. Now, that also means that the quietest part of that recording has to still be above the noise floor of our room. Otherwise, the really, really quiet mm -hmm. sounds will get absorbed in the noise floor. So if your room has yes. a noise floor of, let's say, 35 dB, and you have recorded dynamic range of 30 on a good recording, you still won't max yep. out beyond 70. Even the quietest yep. sound that is recorded will still be louder than the noise in your room, which is why you can reproduce realistic recorded dynamic range without exceeding 70, 75 dB in the seat. It's not necessary. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that you can't do it and enjoy and have a party and rock out at 105 dB. But to me personally, sure. that is actually unrealistic because in the orchestra with 60 or 70 people playing, we never got louder than 90 dB. Hmm. That already, to me, was really loud. But I also recognize that if I hadn't grown up with a classical education, and if I had gone to rock concerts mm. instead, and I had heard, I don't know what was popular at the time, but Deep Purple maybe, right, Life on Stage, mm -hmm. my idea of what's loud would be very different. And I would have been exposed to rock concert-like levels. And I would have thought that loud meant it had to be, you know, 110 dB. But chances mm. are, if I had done that, I by now would most likely have hearing damage. I would have tinnitus. And you can see with a lot mm. of the rock musicians, they will actually admit to you 
that they have tinnitus. And that when they go and they play on stage, they wear earplugs because on stage it is that loud. Right. Pete Townsend has, yeah. has tinnitus. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of them. Yeah. I, but I think wearing, uh, wearing earplugs to concerts now for me is a thing. And not that I have been to one for a while, but when I start going again, I'm taking earplugs because I'm just too, too old for that. Yeah, now. But see, here's the thing. And I think this is a very important point to make is that mm. playing that loud is unnatural and it's unhealthy. And it's not something that we should even aspire to. See, I think that the message should become louder that the smart shopper will look for a hi-fi system that is really satisfying at low levels. Because at low levels, you can listen longer before you get fatigue. So that's a bonus. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, why buy a hi-fi if you can only listen to it a half an hour at a time and then you want to stop because your ears are ringing? But you play mm. it that loud because if you play it quietly, it somehow it sounds boring. Certain hi-fi systems need to be played loud before you sort of feel you can hear everything. I call it when the curtain mm. have risen all the way and all the performers are finally on stage, mm. right? I do the opposite. Mm -hmm. I look for a system that I can play it at whisper levels or at really low levels, and I feel everything is already there. I don't need to play any louder mm -hmm. to feel I hear everything there is to hear, and I feel immersed. Because not only can I now listen longer, I can listen much more often. I can listen at 6 o'clock in the morning when my wife is still in bed. I can listen at 2 o'clock mm. at, at night, you know, when the neighbors are in bed. And I don't disturb anyone, which means I get to use my hi-fi a lot more often. And I think that's a very important consideration. And so one thing I have noticed, and this goes now back to the Enlium, is, and this is also mm. something that Nelson Pass educated me to, that when amplifiers are allowed to be of lower power because their target customer knows that he or she doesn't need more, they are educated enough to not mm -hmm. fall for the salesman trick that says you need 500 watts. Mm -hmm. So if the amplifier is allowed to be less powerful, it can be less complicated. It needs fewer gain yep. stages. And fewer gain stages mean lower distortion. And it also means less complex distortion. So only second and third mm. order rather than fifth, seventh, and ninths, which sounds progressively more objectionable. Mm -hmm. And that means that lower power amplifier can be simpler. And because they are simpler, they can sound more refined. They can sound more transparent. Mm. There's sort of less stuff that the signal has to push through before it gets to the voice call of the speaker. And those very often are also the amplifiers that sound good very, very early on the volume range. And the, the saying, I think Dick Ultra made it popular was, if the first watt doesn't sound good, why would you want any more? <laughs> and that's why Nelson Powers named his second company First Watt. The whole idea was that I'm going to now focus on particular circuits that can be very, very simple. I mean, very simple, because I'm going after a niche market, a niche audience that is fine with 10 watts or 15 watts. Mm. And now I can have a two-stage amplifier. He even has a single-stage amplifier. It's a single gain stage, nothing more. It is incredibly simple, and it sounds incredibly refined. And yes, it's only usable if you have the right kind of speaker. Right, so this is a, this is a thing, though, isn't it? I mean, you need to be 
the sort of high efficiency or sorry, high sense, well, a bit of both really, high sensitivity, high, high efficiency speaker owner before you can start looking at a Nelson Pass first watt amp. Or you know that you don't listen very loud. So all of a sudden, even uh, an 86, 87, 88 dB speaker will be fine mm. because you know that you will never eclipse 10 watts because to you, 75 dB peak in the seat mm. is your max. You never go beyond that. So now a 10 watt amplifier will, be su will suffice. And now mm. the only proviso, what do you say proviso? Is it proviso or what? Proviso. proviso. Okay, so the only proviso yeah. now is that you don't suffer the below the waist syndrome that you feel with your Wilsons. And I think there we also should admit that given its category of a compact high-end monitor, the Wilsons are not really bass hounds. There's other speakers of a similar ilk that will actually produce lower, more powerful bass. So they're not Correct. very, that's not yeah. their strong point. So the Enleom really was sort of a little bit handicapped in that respect. You know, I have a a, a three-way 10-inch speaker here where the, mm. the Enleom's 25 watts are perfectly sufficient all the way down into the base. Right. Because that happens to be an, a very easy load to drive. And the speaker already is very good in the base. It goes down to like minus 3 dB at 33 hertz. So there's mm -hmm. very little missing. So that's why in my house, with any speaker that I, I'm likely to bring in, the Enleom is my main amplifier in my main system. Interesting. But there's also a cheap trick that I play, which goes back to our first podcast, and that is mm. that I also have an active subwoofer that I can bring mm -hmm. in, where the Enleom now no longer sees any bass whatsoever because I have a crossover where the high pass that the Enleom amplifies doesn't see any bass below 80 hertz. So now I can even review a very ah, hard-to-drive speaker, and the Enleom will never see the hard bit. It will never see the bass bits at all, because those are covered by the subwoofer. And that's another, that's another argument in favor of what we talked about in the last podcast, that if you segregate mm the audible frequency spectrum into you know upper bass and up in your passive main speaker mm -hmm. and bass and low bass into an active sub you can get away with a much smaller main amplifier if you cross the bass out of the main speaker so that that amplifier that drives the main speakers no longer sees any bass and no longer has any hard work to do which is exactly which is what I do in my main system. But Shoshan, could you explain exactly what you have running before the Enlium amp in that situation and where you do the volume attenuation? Okay, so I have a, a, a passive preamp in front of the Enlium. The Enlium is sitting at full mm -hmm. gain, so I bypass, I, I, you know, I bypass its, its attenuator, pretend it's an, an amplifier rather than sort of a quasi-integrated, and then I have yeah. a passive preamp in front, Mm -hmm. And then between the passive preamp and the Enleom, I have a small box, which is a active crossover. It's set at 80 hertz. I also have one at 40 hertz. And it has mm. one input and two outputs. I go in RCA out of the preamp, and I come out RCA, a high pass, 
80 hertz mm-hmm. and up. That goes to the Enlium, yep. which drives whatever speak I yep. have. Low pass goes out to the 250 watt kinky monoblock, which drives the subwoofer and off. I see. So you're you're using the the Enlium effectively as a power amplifier and not using its own its its volume control, its uh, variable gain. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. I haven't tried that actually. Not yet. I guess I should, but I don't have um I don't have a preamp with a <laughs> with a filter built in. Right. So. so you are good at this. So maybe we should recapitulate what we've talked of thus far, which had to do with power, SPL, loudness, amplifier ratings, speaker sensitivity, and bass systems and how hard or not they are to drive so hang on so basically you you really need to know first of all how loud you like to listen exactly right i think that's probably probably the first starting point here so download and then download you need an spl right yeah yeah and then you probably need to know how powerful your amplifier is like in terms of wattage output and then also how sensitive your loudspeaker is and probably it's a good idea to have a, a handle on its impedance, even if you don't have the plot. So with, with, with that information, if you know how loud you listen mm. and you know the sensitivity rating of your speaker, with those mm. two bits of information, you can figure out how much power you need to buy. So we said that a, a good rule of thumb is to, if you sit three meters away from your speaker, that mm. seems to sort of be an audiophile an average two and a half three meters yeah. okay mm-hmm. subtract mm-hmm. 10 db from the speaker's published sensitivity rating at one watt one meter mm-hmm. subtract 10 db and you know how loud the speaker will play at one watt so basically if you have um let's say you got the wilson tune tot or something like that you've got an 85 db stand mount loudspeaker mm-hmm. so if you that means what I, I, we haven't really explained this yet, but what that means is if you put one watt of power into that loudspeaker and sit one meter away, you will get 85 dB of SPL at that particular listening point, right? Correct. So you obviously you're saying you're saying if you sit three meters away, that then becomes 75 dB. Correct. So if you've got an 85 dB speaker and you sit three meters away, you're going to get 75 dB in the seat if you put one watt into that speaker. Correct. And if you now know that you are John Darko, and when it gets, or let's say you're Srirani Ben, and he thinks it's mm-hmm. loud, 75 dB is sort of kind of the max, then you know yep. that you don't really listen to more than one watt most of the time. Mm-hmm. So now you could actually go after one of those low-power single-ended triode amps and most likely be okay if you like the sound of that amplifier in general. You know that you will not run out of power. Right, but isn't the curveball here current? Because yes. current will de- determine how well the bass is controlled. I'm, I'm generalizing here because obviously it depends upon, the, as you've said, the impedance plot in the bass of that speaker. But generally, more current gives you more control and greater articulation, even if you have to trade in on some of the the nicest of tonal color or timbre stuff that you might get from a a lower current delivering amp, which has a simpler circuit. But if you need, you know, if you want good bass control, generally, I think 
current is a valuable asset to have, right? It seems to be that way, yes. Right, so you might only need <sighs> one watt or two watts or five watts on paper, but <laughs> I don't know. I think in reality, Shushan, like if you want to have the good base control of your speaker, if it's particularly stubborn or not an easy load for the amplifier to drive, then maybe more output devices, more power is something you should consider. So Absolutely. I, I, don't know whether I would it's agree with that. Quite as, it's, it's not as black and white as like just doing these numbered calculations. I think this is where I was stumbling before because I'm like, well, okay, if it was that, then everybody would just be buying an NLAM or something like it, like, or a, yeah, a five-watt set amp. But there is a compromise to be had from those amplifiers, even if it's loud enough in the seat. Yes, and there is another thing that is very basic that seems to be mm. that if you want good low bass and you want good sensitivity, you can't pursue a really small speaker. You know, right, yeah. That you, yeah. If, if you want, you can only get two out of the three, you know, when, when it comes to size, extension, mm -hmm. and loudness. So if you, want, right. if you want good, loud, low bass, and you want it to be reasonably easy to drive, if, it, if you have a big speaker, it will be much easier on the amplifier than if you have the most compact possible speaker that really has to push its alignment to pump out 35 hertz bass. That will be a mm -hmm. much, much harder load to drive. But if for some reason, cosmetically or otherwise, that's the kind of speaker that you're after, like the Wilson mm. Tuntard, I think, would be a good example. You know, beautifully made mm -hmm. from a very, very high-end company, great ingredients, looks good. Mm -hmm. But most likely, if you make that choice, you now also have committed yourself to pursuing something like your Hegel amplifier. That, that, Correct. That, puts out 200 watts. Well, maybe Hegel makes one at 100 watts that you would find they do, yeah. just as yeah. good, but most likely that might be the lower limit of what that particular speaker would want to see, 100 watts or more. Now, if you went to something like a Cube Audio from Poland, they make these, uh, mm -hmm. these single driver speakers that are very similar in concept to the Voxative in Berlin, where you are. Mm -hmm. They're not as sensitive as a Voxative. They're like normal. They're like 93 dB, but they don't have any crossover. So the amplifier output goes directly to the voice call via your speaker cable. The box mm -hmm. has to be reasonably large to make good bass out of a single driver. These are like 10-inch drivers, 10-inch mm -hmm. diameter drivers. But you get into the mid-30s. And there, the Enleom is all you would ever need. And, you you know, most of the power that the Enleom actually has at its disposal, you're not even tapping. But even mm. current-wise, it is completely sufficient for that kind of speaker. Right, but this is, this is something that I guess the, uh, the Fleawatt ampers have figured out a long time ago, is if you have... I mean, again, I'm going to generalize a little bit here. If you've got a big speaker and it's high sensitivity, so like a Klipsch, like a Zoo, like a JBL, you don't need a beefy amplifier at all. I mean, even five watts will be enough to control that large driver, generally speaking. I mean, I've, I've run the Klipsch Forte 4 that I still have here with the Hegel. I've run it with the Enlium. And I don't see the advantage of having the Hegel with those speakers that I do with the Wilsons or the Kef or whatever. Mm -hmm. So... It's it's definitely enough to have a low powered amplifier with these sort of larger, more sensitive loudspeakers. 
And I'm increasingly drawn to that particular arrangement, actually. Another thing that, in my experience, also factors into that, and we touched on that briefly before, is that very often that type of more sensitive speaker, like a Zoo or a Klipsch or a JBL, they'll, mm. like the Brits say, come on song much lower on the volume dial. So you feel like not, not even, never mind the need, you don't even have the desire to play them really loud because it's, it's so unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And I think especially for the average apartment dweller who has neighbors. Like me. Yeah. yeah. Yep. But you know, you are in a commercial building, so you're not even worried about neighbors after five o'clock. But if you're talking about the average apartment dweller in a, in a brownstone where there's like, you know, mm -hmm. four apartments on top and three below and another 10 on the other side of the hallway, you should be very sensitive to the fact that you have neighbors. So if, yes. if you can listen yeah. to your system quietly and feel fully satisfied, you get a lot more out of it. And that should be probably one of your primary, your most important parameter when you decide what to buy, besides that you can afford it and besides that you like mm. the looks of it, is that mm -hmm. what makes it so that you can use it a lot, that it, that it will play at low levels really satisfyingly, that all the colors are there, you don't feel it's all sort of faded and whitish and thin and brittle, mm. and you don't even have the desire to turn it up. So this is the problem with sorry, insensitive stand mounts like the um, like the Kef, like the Wilson, is that you really you do have to turn them up to to bring them alive. Like low level listening is no way near as satisfying as it is with say the Zoo or the Klipsch, and unless and this is what we talked about last time is unless you add a sub. So if you add a sub, then I think. You know, I could take a big box speaker with high sensitivity or a stand mount with a sub, and I'd be happy with either at low listening levels. Mm -hmm. But stand mounts on their own, this is not this is a new finding for me in sort of the last couple of years. Stand mounts on their own don't satisfy my particular listening tastes at low listening levels. And I like to come down in the morning, it's like seven AM and play some music. I don't want to play it loud. Just because my brain's just not ready for even what I consider to be loud. I want it to be quiet. But I want it to be like enjoyably and satisfyingly quiet, and I get that with a sub or these sort of larger speakers yeah. with low low power amps. So you know, and uh, that I have the same preference or experience that when we're talking about sort of emotionally persuasive, compelling, involving listening, you know, that's emotionally mm. satisfying. To me, it goes from the bottom up. Like it starts in the low bass, right. and the low bass on a passive speaker is one of the first things to go away when you turn the volume yes. down. You, you, you know, the low bass vanishes first, and then the, the airiness, the, the, the finest sort of treble tinkles disappear, and you're sort of left with mm. the mid-range, rolled off on the top and rolled off on the bottom. But since the bottom is now gone, and the sound sounds a little bit thin and and uh, and sort of tonally washed out and the colors have turned pale, that's what makes you turn mm. the volume up again unless until the bass reappears. And that's why you and I have found out that if you have a subwoofer in there that doesn't disappear as quickly or at all when you turn the volume down, you have more satisfaction. I mean, this is one of the great things about the Bukart A500 active speaker 
because it has um, compensation built in for that Fletcher Munson effect, mm -hmm. where the you know the bass and the treble sort of fade away as you take the volume down to zero. So the the DSP kicks in and it lifts the bass a little bit, lifts the treble a little bit, and you go down again and lifts it a bit more at either end. So you don't get that thing that you call whiting out at low SPLs, which is a, a super smart use of DSP in my book. I think it's brilliant. And it doesn't really get talked about enough because I, I'm wondering, why aren't all active speaker companies doing this? It's genius. It is. You know? <laughs> it's just, well, not genius, but it's it's innovative or it's clever. Well, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm really keen on this whole concept of utility, which is like, it's not, mm. the, it's not the guy with the most expensive or shiny toys who wins. But it's the guy who does it the most and the longest. So if I see people, if right. I see people with these really expensive, <laughs> you know, shiny systems, and I find out that really they can only listen to these systems an hour a day because they listen mm. to them really loud, and that one hour is the only time slot that they really have available where nobody complains. And then I see another mm. guy with something much more modest in my mind, much smarter assembled, and that guy gets to listen four or five hours every day, then I would say in mm. my book, that guy and his system, or that gal and her system, she or he wins. Because they get much more utility from the thing that they just bought. It's a little bit like when you buy a car, you know, and you're an inner city dweller. You, you probably want a car that you can park relatively easily, even in a small parking yes. spot, so you don't have to keep surfing yeah. the block. It's, you know, yeah. you're looking at the requirements of your particular lifestyle, and you buy according to that. And I would think that there's not that many people that live in McMansions with dedicated listening rooms, fully tricked out with room treatments, so that the room is more or less isolated from the other rooms. Those people are mm. rare. They can do whatever they want, and they can play when they want, what they want, for as loud as they want. But I would say that the majority of people are living with neighbors. And so they are forced, if they want to be friendly to their neighbors, they are forced to listen lower. So doesn't it, does it not now make sense to pursue a system that is really satisfying at low volumes? And I think that's a big yes. And what we just talked about speaks to that if you if you look at that at how much power you need you get a sensitive speaker you get maybe even mm. a, a relatively simple amplifier that is not very complicated that sort of comes on song mm. and sounds full and and transparent and dynamic at low levels you end up using your system more and you don't necessarily have to spend very much money at all I agree. Yes, I think this whole low listening satisfaction thing, especially for apartment dwellers, and apartment dwellers are numerous. I mean, I guess I would I would wager that the majority of my audience actually live in apartments. I'm guessing, but I, I think well, there'll be a large proportion who who do, and have to consider neighbours or semi detached houses. Um, I think it's yeah, it's becoming more apparent that this is the way the world is going, isn't it? I mean, especially if you live in Asia, it's apartments all the way. You've got to find something that works at low volumes. Otherwise, you're going to make enemies of your neighbors pretty quickly. I mean, this is a big, I've probably mentioned this before, it's a big problem here in Berlin because all the old houses that were converted into flats, I think the post-war restoration was pretty basic and there's no insulation between the floors. You can hear everything upstairs, downstairs. So you want something that just you can just 
put on and it just sounds nice at a fairly low level and you don't have any sort of desire to turn it up. And you could probably maybe, I don't know whether you could run a sub in those kind of apartments in those old Outbow, sorry, Outbowton, but I, I just, yeah, it, it's, it's a huge factor, I think. And while we're at that topic, I think we should still throw in another thing, which is very obvious once you think about it, and that is near-field listening. Because when we talked about before and we said that if a speaker measures 85 dB, like your Wilson, one watt, one meter, mm. but at three meters, because of the distance losses, you lose 10 dB, mm. it's obvious that the closer you sit, the less you have to turn the volume up to get the yep. level at your ear that you want. So at my desktop right now, I'm sitting, I can touch the cones of the speakers looking at me without having to lean mm -hmm. forward. I don't know how long my arms are, but they're certainly not one meter long. <laughs> I'm not yet mm. a knuckle dragger. <laughs> so <laughs> let's call it well, 65 watts, just 60 centimeters, maybe 70. Mm -hmm. I can listen to these speakers at 45 dB on my SPL meter, and I don't have to play them any higher to feel like I hear everything there is to hear. And that is quiet enough mm -hmm. where I can still hear myself think and I can actually get work done on my computer. Mm. If I played these louder, they would distract me. But do you st yeah. still get low bass from them? I, I would if they were a different kind of speaker. But this particular okay. one is a five-inch, uh, it's, it's a five-inch active, sealed, without any mm. low uh, low bass EQ built-in. It's actually made for recording engineers. The, the, it, it's going after maximum transparency, which it delivers. But it cuts. It, right. it only goes to 50 hertz. And after that, it falls up really steep. But you'd be surprised that 50 hertz, even on a lot of electronica, is sufficient. And yes, because, it is. because I have a subwoofer, it really is. Yeah. I know that there is still life down to 25 hertz. And I know the difference. Mm -hmm. But in terms of me being able to enjoy it for what it is in this particular setting, it doesn't have to go any lower than that. 50 hertz is sufficient. Mm. And so if I didn't want to sit on my desk looking at a computer screen because I just wanted to listen to music, I could very easily replicate the setup, you know, sitting that close, less than a meter from both speakers, and replicate mm. this on a nightstand next to my bed in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. You know, I set these up on a on a low boil, angle them up so that they're aiming directly at my ear, put a chair mm -hmm. there and a small integrated amplifier, and I'd be done. And I could listen to this thing all day long, and I wouldn't bother anybody, and I wouldn't suffer listening fatigue from, like, being overloaded. Mm. And I think for a lot of people that don't have a whole lot of money and they don't have a whole lot of room because they're living in an apartment, near-field listening is very often overlooked. And when we say near field, I mean like within a meter or possibly even closer. Mm. And that of course now means that you want speakers, they have to now be aimed directly at your ear and you want them small. You can't have these big speakers with like four or five drivers stacked one on top of the other because before they cohere as like one apparent sound source, it only happens three or four meters away right yeah, so yeah, now yeah. you most likely want either a single driver speaker or like what you have a kef or kabas coax or triax mm -hmm. 
And I think for those kind of scenarios, for near-field listening, a coax is the ideal concept to pursue. And if you need more base, then you can add, you know, your small KEF, what is it called, the KC62 subwoofer. Correct. And you just dial it up just enough to give you that little fill. We're not talking about boom truck, mm. sort of, you know, wall bending base. We're just talking about just a little bit of <laughs> fill so that the lower mid-range and upper base region sort of fill out. And suddenly there is a satisfaction. Yeah, I mean, on my desk, I have, well, it's not especially wide, but I've got a gargantuan monitor. I've got a very widescreen monitor for the video edits that I do. Um, it's actually too wide, and it's squeezed out all but a pair of Genelec G2s. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know even if they're still made. Tiny sort of pint-sized Genelec speaker. And I've used them for years, and they're fantastic. And I've often thought about buying the matching sub for them. But I often think about putting that in, in sort of my little sort of office nook. And I would be, I'm, I'm super happy with the Genlex on their own. I, but that's, yeah, I guess, I mean, I don't really kind of consider that as comparable to what I have in my lounge room where I'm sitting now. But it would still be immensely satisfying. But I guess the point I wanted to make here is that I think most speakers, even the KEF LS50 Wireless 2, speakers like that are too big for most desktops. They're just kind of, they're just too much. Mm -hmm. It's just too much speaker for a desk. The desk reverberates. It, the, the the sound, it it doesn't image properly because, like you say, you have to sit far back. And that's a coax. Maybe the LSX would be better, but that's not, you know, that doesn't sound as good as the LS50 uh, Wireless 2. So I don't know. I, I, I recommend people go very small with a speaker on the desktop, which... Uh, people don't generally want to do, do they? They, they want to kind of get, get the biggest thing that they can fit. But I, I say, no, don't do that. Just get something small. Well, I find also that very often they don't pursue proper isolation because mm -hmm. what otherwise happens, I have a, a what do you call it? Um, a, a glass top, you know, it's not regular glass, it's that hardened glass. And I, I put yeah, a little leather yeah. cover on top so I don't have to keep cleaning the fingerprints, but still it's glass in a wooden mm -hmm. frame. And then I have one of those sort of pull out keyboard drawers underneath. Mm -hmm. And even though you have this, you know, this, uh, this drawer mechanism that's hanging underneath the glass top and I've got the leather and I've got some decoupling footers between the speakers and the leather, I can still feel some vibration while I'm on my keyboard, mm -hmm. there's, you know, they're still not adequately isolated. But what I find very, very important on the desktop is that the speakers aim directly at me, which means I have to angle mm -hmm. or tilt them up and I have to tow them in sharply so that the, the center of the driver, in this case, it's a single driver, aims directly at my ears. If it's a two-way mm -hmm. with a separate tweeter, that tweeter has to be on axis and if it's a small enough two-way to fit on my desktop and it's just sitting flat it will always fire at my sternum it will miss my ear completely and so i will hear mm. very rolled off treble now what i need to do is i need to angle the speaker up to make sure that the tweeter is on axis with my ears and i see a lot of setups where people don't pay any attention to that and so of course you won't have good sound staging because the sound stage cues you know, what tells our brain where sounds are coming from, they are mapped with the high frequencies. So if those are mm -hmm, compromised, mm -hmm. your sound staging is going to get diffused. So if you have a mm. desktop speaker that has a separate tweeter, 
make sure that speaker is on ear height. So either put your speaker on risers or angle it up. So that that speaker is like yeah. a, like a gun. It's firing directly at your ear, and it doesn't. And you don't <laughs> want to miss. <laughs> no. Yeah, I have used those isoacoustics isolating stands for speakers on yeah. desks, and they do, they do the job. But I I can't get along with them because they look so ugly. I know. I just look at them going. It's horrible. I know that isoacoustics make uh, a fancier a metal model, not the plastic. That is the problem. Is is it? You know, it's. Three, four hundred bucks, I think. It's quite expensive. And if you're talking about small speakers for a desktop, the pricing doesn't seem to fit any longer if unless you buy those the uh the bottom level. I forget the name of the model, the I don't know what they call the isoacoustic speaker isolators. They're about 120 bucks, something like that. And they're great. And I've seen people use them in their lounge rooms. I could never do that because I <laughs> just I can't look at them. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's it's a it's a thing, but um, yeah. And the other thing I wanted to bring up goes back to something you just said before, and that was the difference in sound between the desktop system that you have that you're very happy with, and what you have in your lounge room. It's a different kind of experience, and I completely relate to that. And what how I would describe the difference between my desktop or my small sort of bedside system and the main system in the six by five meter room is that the desktop experience I would find is a little bit more cerebral. It's not as sort of physical. It's definitely a whole lot more intimate because first of all, the speakers Mm -hmm. are closer to me. And like you, I have a big curved screen between them. Mine might be smaller than yours, but it's 34 inches. You know, it's like a big curved monitor. And the speakers are mm-hmm. right on the edges of that monitor. So the, the screen sort of becomes this visual barrier. And even though when I close my eyes, it seems as though the soundstage was behind the screen. When I open my eyes, which obviously I do while I work, the soundstage mm. seems to be like populating my screen as though I was watching a movie. It's very close. It's much, much more intimate, and because there is less space, because I also don't play it as loud, obviously, at, the, at, at close proximity, mm. I don't sort of get that visceral, physically experience. It's more cerebral. It's more like observer perspective, a little bit more like what I imagine people do in a recording studio when they are mixing and mastering. They're not, they're not mm. trying to get lost in the music and go on some kind of a daydream. They're like, they're like surgeons, you know, with a scalpel, looking at little things to treat. It's very, very visual. They, they, they're looking, they're inspecting, they're analyzing. And that's the kind mm. of sound that I right now have on my desktop, which is why I don't have to play it very loud at all. I can see everything. And on the desktop, sort of in my, the frame of mind that I have here and the expectations that I have here, I actually wouldn't want the sound to be sort of warmer and bassier and ballsier because that would completely negate why I'm on the desktop, which is to work. Mm. So when I go into the main sound room, it's a very different experience. It's, you know, the sound stage goes, is much deeper, much higher, much wider. There's more bass, it's more visceral. I also play it louder. Mm. It's more involving. It's a, it's a more, how should I say, um, 
Is it more open, would you say? Because when I'm at my desk, I always feel like I'm cocooned into a little world. And yeah, the, my focus is obviously much sharper and more more pointed and more specific. Whereas I guess my mind will happily drift if I'm sat in here listening to music. Yeah, that's maybe a good way of putting it. The, the, the big system is more capable of sort of getting me into this sort of twilight zone where, you know, you're not dreaming yet, you're still here, but the music sort of takes you into this other into this other space. You have your eyes closed mm. and you're sort of you're going off into the zone, letting the music take you. It's not analytical at all. It's completely subjective. It's about feelings. You're not really evaluating the sound. You're just sort of letting it carry you somewhere else. That's what the mm. big system does really well. The little system is more like an observer system, like, you know, seeing every little nuance from the mind's eye. And I like mm. the fact that I have these two very different perspectives. And headphone listening, to me, over my raw ribbons, is very much like mm. what I have now on the desktop. It's even more intimate, it's even more transparent, and it's more dynamic. But it's like that. It's a very sort of cerebral, observer's, informative, inspective kind of listening. Whereas if I go to the, the iFi IDSD Pro, which is a, mm -hmm. an, a, a DAC pre-head amp that can upsample or resample PCM to DSD at a very, very high rate, and it even throws defeatable tubes in there. If I listen to that, and I listen to the uh, Final D8000 planers that I think mm -hmm. you know as well, you know, I listen to those or something like a Meze Empyrean or like an Odyssey mm -hmm. uh, LCD, the, the closed version, which is much warmer and bassier, then I get closer to the big system. And I think they're all equally valid. They are all different perspectives. And, you know, if I had to eat, sushi is my favorite food, but if I had to eat it every day, I'd get bored. So it's like, you know, you like different cuisines, and if you can go out, you eat Italian mm. or, you know, Greek or whatever you like, but not always the same. And I think the same is, is neat to have at home if you can afford to have more than one system, and you make sure that they have sort of very different kind of styles of presentation. So they, they cater to your head, and they cater to your heart, and they cater to your gut, but not necessarily all at mm. the same time. You know, this is why I really love that little NLAM amplifier, because it gives me both. Because as a headphone amplifier, it's outstanding as well, yeah. like truly. So it gives me both worlds. So I, if I get the speakers that match that amplifier, and I've already got a bunch of different headphones here, I do, all I have to do is just plug it in. I don't have to set up a separate little headphone listening station on the side. It is my main amplifier, and it's used for both both modes of listening, which I think is really exceptional. Okay, now I have a question for you, because we mm -hmm. have both heard the Enleon, and we have a very similar opinion about it. Mm -hmm. The way that I tried in my review to describe how I perceive the main difference that it has to most other amplifiers that I know. I called mm. it lit up all over. And then the other thing that I kept saying is that I hear it as a very, very fast amplifier. Now that you have heard it, can you relate to that? Or is that sort of still a somewhat alien or weird description? Not at all. I mean, I, I love the idea of things being lit up. 
because I think you've used this before and you also talk about um, bands playing under house lights. And that's something I think I've, I've nabbed from you because I think it's great because I can't stand this whole idea of blacker backgrounds because it's it, it's like listening in outer space. It, it doesn't work. So when when everything's lit up all over, you see all the sort of the stuff on the stage that's sort of in between all the players. It's not just the players being spotlit individually, is it? It's like the whole thing. So I can, yeah, I can absolutely relate to that. I don't know about necessarily about speed. The pro, the reason I say I don't know that, that about that is because I think the zoo is actually quite a fast speaker because it's, well, it's exceptionally dynamic and the same with the Klipsch. So I have a hard time separating the amp from the speaker. Okay. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just sometimes curious, or let's put it differently, I think that some people don't know what I mean when I call an amplifier fast. Because to them it's like, well, does the music play any faster? No, the same four minute and two second track still takes four minutes and two <laughs> seconds. So what do you mean it sounds faster? Uh, mm. So that's why I was curious whether that word, a faster versus a slower sounding amp, whether that word sort of makes sense to you. Because what, I, what it means to me is the fast amp sounds direct, like there's nothing between me and it. It's like quicksilvery. It's like putting my hands mm -hmm. into a socket and getting an electric shock or a jaw. Whereas with mm. another amp, it's like, what do you call this? You know, when you were a kid and you went to the, you went to the circus and they, they're selling this, this sweet cotton taffy on a stick. Yeah, candy floss or cotton candy in America. Cotton candy, okay. Yeah, yeah. Some amplifiers sort of sound like they put that between me and the sound. There's sort of this fluffy, fuzzy cotton candy intermediary sort mm -hmm. of stuff there. And to me, that's like slow. That's mm, sort of like okay. a car with a really plush suspension. And you don't feel the road. You feel like you're sort of in this, in this floating thing, but you don't have the rubber on the road. You, don't, you mm. don't have that contact patch feeling. So that's what I mean by fast. I was just curious whether that sort of translates, because it's not really a word that is used a lot in the audiophile vocabulary. So I think I use the word zippy. And I guess... The okay. connection between that that word and what you've just described, especially the car thing, it's like when you drive a mini. I don't have you ever driven a mini? Like a, yeah, like my, a, my wife a, had one. Right. So you you're, you sit very close to the road. Yep. You feel every bump, but it does feel zippy. And I had a girlfriend who had one, and she terrified me the way she drove in it, even though she was not driving that fast. Yeah, she was not driving faster than anybody else, but it felt. Yeah, there's, there's a greater connection to, yeah. between me and the roads, and I didn't like that in that particular case, but I, I, I understand exactly what you're talking about. But the weird thing is that, that Zippy can also be mistaken because some people relate that to like a forward bright treble, right? Like a sort of sharp forward sound. And when I talk about lit up, I, mm. I always had to specify lit up all over so that it was not just a lit up treble that is bright mm. and is forward. Because if it's all over, if it's like a continuous quality, or in your case, zippy, the feeling mm. that you're in full contact with the road or with the experience, it's very, very direct and immediate, then it makes perfect sense. And it's not specific to, you know, just a treble band. Right. So I guess the word is immediacy then, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard to choose the right word because whichever one you choose, a whole chunk of your audience won't get it. And then you choose a different word and a different chunk of the audience won't get it. So it's, it's difficult to get the right word. I don't know. It's, so if you had to go back yeah. to the Enleum, now that you've heard it, 
And mm. if I ask you right now in a few sentences to tell me what that amp does better than any other amp that you have heard, what would be the highlights that you would pick out? Oh, man, I, I guess it's, it's, it's really in the sort of the fine strands of information that seems to pull out, but not in that. See, a lot of a lot of amplifiers I hear tend to do it in that sort of very sort of squeegee clean kind of way. Like they polish the window and you can see everything. But I think the NLAM does it in a slightly different way. And it seems to be more elegant in the way it presents those things. So it's not it's definitely not what I would call a squeegee clean kind of amplifier. That I would probably say that the NAD is or the MyTech Brooklyn amps are. It it just I guess it's more easeful in its communication of those details that it extracts so there's a certain yes it is immediate but it doesn't sound like it's revving the engine too hard to get there you know it just seems to be so graceful but that's not a yeah so if if i said it was very high but organic resolution would that point in the same direction yeah because it's not like um a good actually here's a good analogy right so smartphones have got amazing with with photography mm -hmm. so you take a picture on a smartphone now and the computational photography that goes on the background after you've clicked the shutter button is incredible and i think a lot of amplifiers tend to be more like that and i think the nlam is closer to what you get from a dslr or a mirrorless camera with a large sensor behind the lens mm -hmm. like it just seems to capture the information more beautifully i mean olaf has used two different cameras in, in making our videos and the one he used to use is it was is called a canon c300 and now he uses a oh god what's it called i forgot what it's called now and it's really important <laughs> oh god ah <laughs> oh, hang on a minute it's called the 6k black magic it's called the black magic 6k and i look at the footage from the new camera and it is it's more vivid but it doesn't have that sort of soft elegance or ease to it that the old footage has so it's just um i guess yeah i in some ways i prefer the old one but I, I do appreciate the new one because you can see more but it's a bit more um i gotta say it it probably looks a little bit more artificial mm -hmm. so i think yeah the older camera is i would describe the way the footage looks as more organic yeah that's how i would describe the endium yeah yeah and i think now this is getting us at sort of this quandary in audiophile discourse between quote-unquote musicality on one side and resolution on the other side, where the people that sort of value musicality find that a lot of so-called high-resolution equipment or sound might have a lot of information, but the way that it presents it is not organic. It's more artificial or like more under a neon light, like on a on a vivisectionist table. You see everything, mm. but it keeps you aloof, and it doesn't feel either natural or it doesn't feel comfortable. And they're looking for a, a certain quality that under that neon light is just not there. And I think what we yeah, talked about, you know, this or, the combining the organic or the beautiful with being able to see everything without feeling it's that you know squeegee clean somebody just came here was like alcohol you can still smell you know the alcohol on the in the room because it just evaporated mm. from the window but something about it just doesn't feel 
natural or comfortable. So trying to find this in-between place where you hear everything there is to hear that you know is there, mm. but it also doesn't leave you cold or somehow aloof and distant. I think that's, to me, that's the golden mean, trying to find components that sort of fall in between. Yeah, I, I don't know whether, well, I guess there are, there are variations in between as well, but I think the, yeah, the word I would use is soulless. Sometimes things can be so revealing that they just end up being a little bit soulless. But I, I suppose if you're putting together your own system from different separates, then you probably have some control as to how you can counterbalance that or counteract that a little bit. Or uh, yeah, I mean, I know you shouldn't use things as tone controls or anything like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about. I mean, if I had like, for example, the Brooklyn amps. I tend to prefer those with the shit Freya tube amp preamp, mm -hmm. uh, you know, before them, because it just, it softens things a little bit, just a touch, you know, mm -hmm. and that's a nice balance for me. Now, not everybody's going to like that. People might, might like that ultra vivid resolution that the Brooklyn amps give them, but I don't know. But I, the thing is, I, I tend to find that I see, I, I don't want to lump class D into all of this Trajan because it's, it's a risky business to do that, but they they tend they tend to be more often than not those sort of squeegee clean type of amps, and I can definitely understand why people really really love them, because some people's brains are wired differently to mine, and they just want more and more detail, and that's that's the end of it, right? And they think that's well, they believe that to be pleasurable, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I'm, I sound like I'm implying that there is, but there's really not. I think it's just that's where taste really comes in. I mean, you or I might want a little bit more, I don't know, tenderness than those amplifiers provide, but... Well, here's, here's another thing. If, if I compare listening to seeing, mm. if I look out the window right now, I can see trees, I, then I can see the river, and then I can see the riverbank on the other side. And even mm. though my, my eyes have aged, and they're not as good as they used to be, even when I was young, that the further away objects would be from me, the softer they would get. They wouldn't lose focus, but they would certainly not be as sharp as things mm -hmm. right in front of me. So the natural perception is that with distance, there is a greater softness. Without losing detail, well, yes, you do lose some. I don't see individual leaves on the trees across mm -hmm. the river. Mm. And I think in audio, it's the same thing. If I'm, if I'm in, a, uh, in a concert, and I have musicians in the first row, and then I have musicians that are like 10 meters behind them, the musicians behind them don't sound as sharp or crisp as the one in front. And so, mm. so if a hi-fi changes that ratio, and suddenly the depth of field changes, and everything is equally sharp, whether it's right, like okay. close or yeah. far away, to me, that's unnatural. But, but some people call that high resolution, that the final row is as sharp and crisp and outlined and seems to be as close as the first row. So it, it's just like if you change the f-stop on a camera. So if you have something, the f-stop set at, say, like, I don't know, two, then what your focus, your you know, the object of your focus will be in focus, and then everything behind the, the let's say it's a person, everything behind that person will be blurred. Right. Now, you could show some people that photograph... And then you could show them the same 
person stood in the same situation, maybe there's trees behind or whatever, and you could take it with a phone and the f-stop will automatically bounce to like 12 or something. So the person's in focus and the trees are in focus and everything's in focus, right? Yeah. So you see everything. Now, if you put those two photographs in front of an audience of people and ask them which one they prefer, there'll still be a section that prefer the, the phone version where everything's in focus because they just like to see everything. Like yeah. I, I got complaints early on with my videos. People, honestly, people would go, John, why do you have to have all this sort of fancy blur stuff? Can't you just make sure that everything's in focus so we see everything, right? So that told me that there are people that just want to see everything and that they don't care about the sort of the artistic decision because that's what it is to blur the background, to draw your eye to what's in the foreground and vice versa, right? Yeah. So I think it's just the way people are wired. I don't, I, I can't really see any other, other way of explaining it. So this, I think this is why there's so much, uh, I, I don't want to say conflict, well, there is online, but so much sort of anxiety surrounding, you know, who's got the best Wi-Fi system as if it's a competition, but it's not. But it's just, well, the, like you've said earlier on, which is which is the fundamental point, it, the best Wi-Fi system is the one that makes you want to play music more often. Exactly. End of story, right? It's just, and it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what it is, if you want to, I mean, I, I come down here and I fire it up straight away. And yeah, I, I love that. It just, yeah. I, I revel in the sound, even when I'm watching TV. I'm like, yeah, that sounds good, you know? But I think with TV, that sort of detail in the background is probably more important to me. I don't, you know, I guess I wouldn't really enjoy as, it as much if, if, if it were like that sort of arty photo where the subject was in focus and the background was blurred. I completely, no, I completely agree. And I think that is because the video is already, uh, it's inherently flawed in, in, in that the sound, if you have a decent system is three dimensional and mm -hmm. the picture is two dimensional, right? The right. picture is two dimensional. And that's, I think, the, 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 the brain, the mind fuck, if I may say so. When you go to, um, to a movie theater and you have surround sound and mm. your eyes tell you that the helicopter is in front of you, but the surround sound tells you that the helicopter is now behind you. Mm. So the eyes and the ears get two completely different, actually conflicting signals. So mm. when I'm watching video and, you know, it's a character-driven movie or uh, uh, you know, episode, and yep. the, the Foley artists have paid really great attention to the location din, you know, to like the little branch crackling and yep. the yep. wind, uh, you know, in the leaves, and then you hear a car door slam in the distance or what have you. That sort of creates dimensionality even for my, the descent, the, the, the eye impression, that I now mm. feel that I actually see more of that space because what my eyes are telling me is, is very two-dimensional and I actually don't see half the stuff that I'm hearing. I don't mm. see the car door slamming in the background. It's out, outside of the frame. Mm. And I don't actually see the wind either. But the more of those little things I hear that are behind the dialogue and behind you know, the, the, the music that is accompanying the, the, the film, the mm. more enveloping and believable I find the experience. So there, with video, I think that the non-organic, super high-resolution sound 
becomes much more important. So I'm wondering if the people that sort of chase that super high res sound are maybe listening to music as much as they're watching movies and vice versa. Maybe they're because I'm, 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 I would say that I'm 90% music and 10% movies and TV. But maybe somebody who's 50-50 wants all the resolution that they can get because it matters a lot for them when watching movies. And because they watch so many movies and over the years, their ear brain gets trained in that sort of presentation, right? So when they cut over to music, that's the, the, they want the, the similar experience where they hear everything. I think that is spot on. And in fact, I was going to say earlier that different listeners, I think, listen from different places within themselves. You know, I was yes. just arbitrarily mentioning the head, the heart, and the, and the gut or the belly, right? Mm -hmm. And now, however you would phrase that, I think everybody can relate that you can listen from the head and you can listen as though you were looking. It's very mm. visual. You're looking at things and you're looking at the, the leaves and the veins in the, in the, in, in the leaves rather than mm. looking at the whole forest. You're not looking at the gestalt, you're looking at all the little details. And I think mm. listeners that listen visually appreciate the super high resolution sound. But listeners mm. that are listening more sort of from the heart, like more feeling centered than, than, mm. than seeing centered, they don't need all of that detail. They can enjoy a Monet, which is not photorealistic at all. Right. They can yes. even enjoy a pointillist painting where if you step up real close, all you see is like, dots of color they make no sense whatsoever and then you step mm. back and suddenly there is the painting but it doesn't have that detail that a photorealist would get would give you mm. that appeals to a different sense and i feel yeah. that, that that even composers compose from different places or they they aim at different places so for example i don't know how much you know about classical music because i don't think that's what you listen to a lot but you probably know what the not Bach a bunch you probably know what Bach is, right? Yes, yes, yeah. Okay, so to me, Bach is very, um, it's like the higher mind. It's like higher mathematics. It's like geometries and shape and order and structure. It's, and it's not like the lower mind. It's not like, you know, the, the noisy mind that accompanies us during the day. But it's sort of like being able to see sort of cosmic connections. But it's sort of mm -hmm. aloof. It's abstract. And then you might have a Chopin, you know, the piano. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Which, which it's where the, there is not a regular beat, but the, the music sort of speeds up and then slows down. It sort of ebbs mm -hmm. and flows like, like water on, on, a, on, a, on a shoreline. Mm. And that is sort of very romantic. And it's very, um, it's moody. Mm -hmm. And it has sort of deep feelings. But then you might listen to uh, some techno or electronica with a very regular heartbeat. And it mm. makes it makes the lower part of you move. You know, your hips start to move. And you start to want to sort of dance. And it sort of it attracts more the, the vital areas in your body. Maybe the sexual center or the, the, the vital center. You want to move in a particular way and get active. Mm -hmm. That is a very different place to listen from. And I mean, if you're listening to Brazilian music, like a samba, it's very vital music. It's clearly music made to and by people who love to dance and to move, and they're very comfortable yes. in their bodies. It's not mm. abstract music where you're sort of sitting and you're wrinkling your brow, you know, 
like you were once joking about the audio files at the shows that you couldn't relate to. Right. Those yes. people, to me, they are more people that listening with their eyes. They're like looking with their mm. ears. And I think they're all equally valid. But when you have people from these different places talk to each other about what it is that's important, then there's a lot of conflict because they actually, they want a different experience and they're using sort of different sensory facilities to pursue their experience. Right, it ends up like the Tower of Babel, where everyone's exactly. talking a different language. Exactly. And so the, the, trying to find common ground is very hard unless you actually say, hey, let's, let's ask ourselves, what do we agree on? You know, instead of battling out a point forever on Facebook, you know, just what do we agree on? I think that's a much better way of finding commonality and so and, and understanding another person's position and where they're coming from and how they're listening and what, I guess, what fires them up, you know, what, what gets them excited. I think it's important to know what but, other people like. But now, now here's, here's an important question then mm. for us working as reviewers. If you are sort of an I visual type listener, mm. it's very easy to review because you can be very specific. You know, you can describe how big the sound stage is and how far everything is away. And you can talk about treble and mid-range and bass and forward and backwards and relaxed. And because those are all very quantifiable, sort of quasi-measurable values. Yes. So a visually based listener can get a lot of information important to him or her from a reviewer that uses that lingo. Mm. But what if you are sort of a quote-unquote musicality type or, or feeling type or let's get lost in the music type listener? And now as a reviewer, if you say, wow, this component made me forget all about the equipment and all I did was get lost in the music and I didn't really remember I was supposed to listen. Wow, that's exactly what it was supposed to do. Well, for that listener, and for that type of reader, that's the piece of information they want. But the other kind of listener, the visual listener, doesn't get anything out of that review whatsoever. In fact, he's, he thinks it's a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. It's, it's a bunch of drivel and empty words. They don't mean anything to him or her. It, it is. So it that's, is. that's <laughs> interesting, isn't it? Because it is. <laughs> like, like a Michael Lavonia who, who likes the word musicality, and he finds it very important to, for equipment to take him to a place. Mm. If he says that that's what this piece did, it, it just made me want to listen to music mm. and not stop, then he has found the perfect piece of equipment. But in terms of being able to communicate to the other part of the audience, they might be a little bit at a loss as to what to make of, of, of what he just said. Right, because it speaks to an internal reference that the reader can never know. Right. But unless if, unless you're a regular follower of, I mean, I, I I haven't seen Michael write musicality myself, but I mean, there are plenty of people that use that word. I guess it's my trigger word, so maybe I should try and dodge this question a little <laughs> bit. But, but you know, like I think what's interesting here, and I've just been thinking about what we're talking about whilst you were saying that, is so for me, electronic music makes me more of a visual listener, whereas if I play sort of, well, let's just call it non-electronic music. So rock, indie rock, pop music, that kind of thing. That makes me listen more from the heart. So I guess I'm operating in a certain sort of duality depending upon the music that I'm playing, which is why I like to mix it up because I think that's what's going on. So I get some electronic music to work out, you know, if, if you know, how precise soundstage placement is. 
But then if I want to kind of get a more sort of holistic sense, I might pull some Neil Young or Tom Waits and just sit back and listen and not focus too hard on the details and see how it makes me feel and if it moves me emotionally, I guess, really. So there's two things going on. But I think the key thing here at play for people like you and I in trying to communicate to others is empathy. We have to think about listeners other than ourselves, which is why that unknowable internal reference, you know, is, I guess it only has a very short range. And if you want to reach more people, you have to talk about, you have to think about other types of listeners, you know, who would like this product? What kinds of listeners, what kind of, you know, music fans would like this product? You have to think beyond yourself, outside of yourself. And that, that's, I think that's the real skill. It's hard. It's super hard. The one thing I would add to what you just said is that when you're listening to uh, sort of indie rock, there's an additional element, right? And that's the lyrics. Yes, there's a vocalist. If the lyrics are in a language that you understand, that adds another dimension that really appeals to the emotions because the lyrics alone are sort of setting up an emotional subtext. Right, it can be joy, it can be, yes, it can yeah. be, it can be jealousy, it can be sadness, it can whatever they are singing about. Mm. Never mind the music, the lyrics alone are like a po- like a to- like a poem. They they sort of set up a time and the space and the feeling. And if you're listening to music without lyrics, that particular aspect isn't there, or not in the same way. So I liken it to paintings, or rather, this is what Brian Eno once said. So sort of electronic music or ambient music he was talking about at the time is like. Uh, a landscape painting. There's there's no sort of central person singing at you in the middle of the painting. So your mm-hmm. eye is free to wander left and right, up and down. But with music with a, a vocalist, it's more like a portrait painting. There's you know somebody in the middle of the image that draws your eye. So your your eye doesn't wander around as much. And maybe it takes more time to wander as you listen and become more accustomed to that song. And then you begin to notice other things going on around the vocalist. That's certainly been my experience. Hmm. Now, here's something very peculiar about about myself, and that is that, and it maybe has to do in that I grew up practicing and playing the clarinet, Mm -hmm. which is obviously an instrument that can only play one note at a time. So it's about melody, not chords. Mm. But it's certainly not about words. Right. When I started getting into hi-fi and listening to music, I was instinctively drawn to much more instrumentals than, than, than lyrics or vocals. And when I do listen to vocals, which I do quite a lot, they are always, without exceptions, vocals in a language that I cannot understand. And that's really? deliberate. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Huh. Because the moment I listen to the lyrics, they take me away from being able to listen to the music Mm. And most of the time, the lyrics annoy me because they tend to be pretty trite. Yes. You know, they're, they're, they're about, obviously, humans with their, with their issues throughout the day, which we all have. Mm. But I don't necessarily want more of that when I listen to music. And I certainly don't want to go through somebody else's trauma and tragedy and jealousy and car broke down and dog died and girlfriend left, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want mm. that. So I do want that. So now I may I, I may <laughs> listen to all of that. I just don't know it because they sing right. in Greek or in Turkish or in French. And that to me allows me to listen to the music per se rather than sort of get 
get stuck on the words, and then I think, oh my God, how how banal is that? You know, another night on fire, higher and higher. I don't need that. <laughs> okay, so yeah, the fire higher liar is just it's asinine. It's yeah, yeah. So in, obviously, English music has the same problem. I mean, it's a universal problem. There's just too many people singing about their girlfriend or boyfriend or just just shit, basically, like the higher fire liar thing. But uh, it's interesting you say this because if I'm listening to a vocalist who, you know, I, well, where I can't understand the language, I, I just have to stop. I can't listen. To, it just drives me crazy. I'm like, I want to oh. know what they're singing about because I want to know if they're talking shit, basically, because I can't, <laughs> I can't bring myself to like a song purely on its melody if I, because I, I could be being betrayed by the vocalist who could be singing about his dog having just died. So it's not just yep. the words, though, because I was thinking about this the other week, because Neil Young, some of his lyrics are shit. They're terrible. But it's the delivery that carries it over the line for me. That It's the way that he sings them. So it's it's not just the words. It's well, it's probably what you get from say a Portuguese singer or a Brazilian. Well, Brazilian is Portuguese, isn't it? So or like I mean, even a German. Well, no, you speak German, so like a, like a French singer, right? You might yeah. <clears throat> you might get carried away by the delivery of the vocal. Exactly. I, right? I don't get stuck. Should the lyrics be very trite? And my wife pointed this out to me because I love flamenco, mm -hmm. and they sing in Spanish. And my wife happens to understand it. And once okay. in a while, she would actually go into the room and say, do you know what, they, what she just said? Do you know what she just sang about? I said, I have no <laughs> idea. I don't, I don't care. And then she would translate for me. And it's like, okay. <laughs> it's the right. same old shit, except it bypassed. It didn't trigger me. It didn't sort of prevent me from enjoying the delivery and uh, the, uh, the qualities of the voice. Because to me, the voice is just like an instrument. So there's tone modulations, there's vibrato, yes. there is how, you know, there's phrasing, there's how uh, a singer manages to get from one from one note to the next. Mm. And as an, as an instrumentalist, that's what fascinates me. And the lyrics, and I, I, I do understand and appreciate that I also miss a certain dimension because there are singers, mm. you know, like Leonard Cohen, that were also real poets. Mm -hmm. Or Sting, for example. Sting is one of the very few that I can listen to because I appreciate his lyrics. To me, he's very, very observant and very intelligent. And so the mm -hmm. lyrics don't create a hurdle for me where I think, oh, this is just, you know, for that, that he's one of the very few where I actually admire the lyrics. And okay. to me, they actually add something. But this is a very, it's a very rare exception for me. Yeah, that is. I, I guess I've. So before I got into electronic music in the early nineties, I mean, I in my teenage years, I was just listening to. I guess you call it pop or indie or whatever. I mean, alternative music maybe, and the lyrics were the. the I guess the. Well, they weren't the major draw card, but they were definitely very much up there. And I knew that if the lyrics were terrible, I just couldn't. I just couldn't like the song. It would just turn me off so much. They just thought, no, this is shit. I'm listening to somebody talking crap. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I was, I was, and still am into a guy called Momus. Um, it's a, a Scottish guy called Nicholas Curry. He actually lives in Berlin now, and I was really into him in the '80s. And his lyrics were just full of literary references, and they were a bit sexual. And I guess that's kind of all sort of fodder for a teenager. 
but it was I, I was just addicted to this this stuff because it was so literary and i guess I, I was really drawn to that i mean i think maybe i've changed over the years maybe i can i don't know though because tom waits is another literary songwriter i mean he tells stories from the heart of america and even though i've you know, at the time when i really got into it, i'd never been to america like i mean i'm talking again in the 90s but i just love the words and the story they were just so moving and sometimes very you know devastating as well but or crazy batshit crazy i don't know i just i guess i've always been driven by humans in songs which is but in a different way to you because you're driven by humans in songs but you i think you hook into the melody before the lyrics i'm i'm the lyrics before the melody you also just said something that i think i'd like to underline is that we change and yes. what it is that we cue into and what it is that is important to us you know, in this hobby where, where it's about sound and playback and music delivery in the home, we change. And I mm. think we should actually celebrate that and we should acknowledge it. And we should not feel like we are we, we need to be sort of uh, loyal to or stuck with one particular way of doing it. We, in fact, can enjoy different things at the same time that seem to conflict with each other. But it's very important, I think, as hi-fi buyers and listeners that we mm. allow ourselves to change and that when if we go somewhere else and we hear something that we never heard before and we enjoy that but it completely conflicts with our notions of what sound should be or what the correct way of doing it is then we should just throw all of that overboard and just go with what rings our bell today and if five years from now that's no longer true mm. then change again there is not only one right way of doing it not even for us. It might be right for us now, but five years from now, it could be very different. Well, I guess it's like me with subwoofers. I mean, three years ago, I would, I would have said, no way, I'm not doing it. But now I almost can't live without them, you know? <laughs> and that's, I guess that's personal progress. That is change. I can also see how to some long-term followers that might look like contradiction, you know, if you're looking at it in a very rigid way. But it is, it's just, it's growth. It's personal growth or professional growth or both, you know, just going where your curiosity takes you and finding you've reached a, a fresh destination that you really like and you want to explore even more. I think, yeah, these things are yeah, hugely important. And I wish people wouldn't get so hung up on change as a, as a reader of a publication or a viewer of a channel or whatever, because people evolve and their, their opinions do change and they make mistakes. And yeah, stuff can be, can seem to be from the outside to be almost all over the place. I mean, that's the, probably the extreme setting for that. But yeah, you're and right. There's also, the, there's also the element that, you know, the assembly of a hi-fi system is really an artistic endeavor of self-expression. I mean, if you go into somebody's mm -hmm. home, the moment you open the door and you're greeted by their decor, the colors, the layout, uh, you know, the type of furniture, whether it's leather, whether it's uh, wood, you know, mm. the, 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 whole, the whole thing, it gives you an immediate insight and feeling into that person's inner life. Mm. They let, and I think the same is true for a hi-fi, that the way that we put it together and the kind of sound that it makes, it's a way of self-expression. It shows something about ourselves and what is important to us. And mm. since we change over time, or hopefully we do, hopefully we are not, you know, just rigidly unchanging, then so should our hi-fi. Yeah, but it's also, I mean, I guess, a, a, 
you know, as people, we can ha- contain within us a, a duality or whatever it is when you've got three of those things that seemingly contradicts. Like, for example, right, I can definitely appreciate and really, I'm really enthusiastic about active loudspeakers. Love them. I think they're fantastic. And some of the technical reasons as to why they might be better than passive loudspeaker systems are extremely compelling. But on the other hand, I can put together a passive loudspeaker system and enjoy it just as much, but for different reasons. Mm-hmm. So I can I can see the joy in both approaches. And it's it's the same with like, I don't know, dynamic driver earphones versus balanced armature earphones. I can see the joy in, in both <laughs> different ways of designing these things. And it, it might to the sort of naive outsider look like I'm contradicting myself constantly, but it's like, no, I just, I like both. You know, it's like, I like curry and burgers. You know, it's not like just one food or like you said earlier, all my life. I, no. <laughs> but, you know, that's also where you and I as reviewers have uh, an advantage in that we can justify and have made, you know, room for in our in, in our homes and also have fun, have made the necessary financial investments mm. into having multiple systems. And when you have multiple systems at the same time in your house, it would make no sense whatsoever if they were all the same. Absolutely. Right? Yes. Yep. Yep. Which means that you actually get to from experience to know that there's three or four or five different kinds of flavors that speak to you. Absolutely. And right. they're yeah. all quite different, but you actually know that. Whereas the average listener works and labors very, very hard to find his or her sort of perfect ideal dream system. It's one system. Mm. And sometimes it has to do double duty and do audio and video. And so once that person sort of has found one system, one quasi soulmate, they think that's it. And they wouldn't really know any other because they can't justify the expense and taking up more floor space in yet another room that has to be converted into some kind of a listening station. That's just mm. not realistic in their lifestyle. So they don't have this advantage that you and I have. I mean, right now I have a headphone system and a speaker system in the office mm. where I am right now. I have two headphone amps and a speaker system in my main room. Mm. My wife has a headphone system and a speaker system in her art studio. Mm-hmm. We have a two-channel, 2.1-channel video system still on the ground floor. And then mm. you go upstairs, and I have two systems in my bedroom. My wife has one system in her bedroom, and there is another system in her paint studio. So there's, what, eight systems in the house? And some are very modest. They're very small. Right. But, I mean, it's, who, who else could justify that? It makes no sense for most people to have that. But it does give me the opportunity or the perspective to know that I can enjoy, you know, sounds all kinds of different ways. And there's something enjoyable in each of them. And if I compare them, I can also admit that this one is lacking something there and this one is lacking mm. something there. Not one system does it all with all music at all times, but I don't expect it to. It doesn't have to. Right. See, I'm flabbergasted by the amount of hardware you've got set up and active in your house, Jean, because, in, in I mean, I've got this room, which has one hi-fi system in it at any one time. It does change quite a lot. And only, like, last weekend did I bother to set up some LS50 with a Blue Sound Power Node in my bedroom. 
mainly because I wanted to listen to podcasts in the morning. But up until then, I was just using a name, Muso. And that's it. Like, oh, apart from my desk setup where I have um, uh, the Genelex. Oh, and I also got the Sonos uh, thing on the wall in the kitchen. But that's not really a hi-fi. That's just, again, for podcasts. I just, I used to be somebody who had like a hi-fi system in the lounge and a hi-fi system in a second bedroom. But I just found it exhausting to have to kind of give my attention to both. It's like having two lovers. Oh. You know, it's just, it's tiring. It's it's fun, but it's tiring, right? It's, it takes up a lot of time. So I'd rather just have one system that I concentrate and then just re- churn through gear in that system. But it's that, logistically, that's quite quite challenging here because I don't have a lot of storage space. But, yeah. but you know, I, I just... I, but for, for me, it's the ability to take one component and just move it from one room to the next and see what it does in different systems, you know? But it does require, I mean, this is about, uh, you know, it's a 200 square meter house and every single room has a system, but it's because I work out of the house. And in fact, you know, my, my tax accountant knows that I work out of the house Mm. and I get to write off half the rent is a business expense because I don't have to, you know, and all the equipment is basically the the business owns it. It's, it's office equipment instead of a factory. I have hi-fi. And so I can justify it and I actually can use it. And I had, when I first came to Ireland, I had uh, two tax inspectors come to the house because they looked at my tax returns and they looked at my address mm. and they said, well, wait a minute, this is out in the middle of nowhere. What the hell is, and, and this guy's getting money from all over the world. Like we can see that, you know, there's wire transfers from Korea and from Vietnam and from mm. America and Canada. What the hell is he doing? Is he like dealing drugs or <laughs> is he selling kidneys? You know? And they came, they, they came to the house mm. and I explained it and I showed them. And the moment they saw it, it was like, yeah, fine. And my tax accountant was there as well. And she said, they'll never bother you again. He said, they just didn't understand what you did. And they didn't understand what a review magazine was. And they didn't understand that you don't sell things because they thought that you sell things. And now where's the VAT that you owe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And if, if, yeah I said, if I sold things that people send me on loan, I'd be a criminal. That'd be theft. Mm. And I'd be out of business. But they had never seen somebody in Ireland in some remote area do this kind of a job. So it didn't make any sense to them. Once they saw it, it was like, yeah, fine, sure. No problem. I have the same problem with the, the German customs, the Solamt. Because if I, I'm trying to get something cleared and they're like, well, you, you bought this, so you have to pay duty on it. I'm like, no, I don't. It's coming in for a short window of time, then it's leaving again. But they, they can't understand that. And they want you to get this number and that number, and I won't do it. I'm like, no, I'm a private person working from home. Like, you should understand this, but they don't. So it's, it's always a battle. But my tax accountant tells me that he's amazed that the finance amp, the tax office here, has not come to look at my lounge room but there'll be no mistaking what I do if anybody steps in here. It'll be inst- <laughs> like you. It's just instantly obvious that the penny will drop and they'll go, ah, okay, right. And they'll see all the, the gear stacked up in one corner and then they'll, they'll fully understand. But it's, as you say, it takes them to come and see it to understand it. But yeah, <laughs> first world problems. I, I have the, the same issue with, uh, with customs when loaners come from outside of the EU. Yes, it's a big problem. And, and I have to tell the, the shipper, the manufacturer, mm. that I will be billed 23% VAT on declared value. And that unless they figure out a way to prepay that, that I'm going to get invoiced by UPS or FedEx or whoever, and that I have to pay it 
before they will even release the shipment out of customs mm. and that I now have to build the manufacturer back. And there is a thing called a temporary importation carnet, yes. which is a bunch of paperwork whereby customs is assured that if the shipment does not leave, they can now take the VAT out of the shipper's account. But that if it does leave within a prearranged window, mm. it can be up to six months long, the VAT is waived. But most manufacturers don't know how to fill out that paperwork. Or sometimes they think that it's just enough if they write on the outside for review purposes only, commercial sample will be returned. And I said, sorry, customs are not idiots. Right. That's not good enough. You will have to pay the VAT. Mm. See, I always insist with the manufacturer, if they're outside the EU, I say you must, must, must pay the duty to the courier before it leaves your loading dock. And that way it will sail right on through customs because the duty's already been paid. No problem. Yeah. Like, and yeah. then you know exactly what you're paying. There are no surprises. And it doesn't get held up for two or three months, as one product did last year. But this is something that I think the listeners will appreciate, that when manufacturers pursue reviews, that this is one of the costs of doing this, that they have mm. to shoulder two-way shipping, including, in some cases, import fees, and then re-import fees. So when mm. a manufacturer like Jacob George of Resum in India... Mm. sends me a pair of loudspeakers to review, he has to prepay the VAT to get the loudspeakers into the EU and Ireland. And mm. then when they go back to India, Indian customs will once again charge him import taxes on mm -hmm. product that he owns. Right. And plus he has, of course, paid the ship fees, which is for a loudspeaker from India to Ireland and back. That is quite costly. Mm. So when people sometimes wonder why certain manufacturers don't pursue reviews, that can be one reason. That it's just, it's, it's, it's just very costly. And plus, when you think about it, if, even if you and I take really good care of the equipment, mm. right, and there's no scratch on it when we put it back in the box, mm. when it goes back to the manufacturer legally, this is no longer a stock. The box has been opened, it's been used. Mm -hmm. So even if they wanted to sell this piece now, maybe to a dealer or a distributor or an end user, they have to do it at a discount because it's now open. Yes. So they can't even recuperate the full value of the product. They lost money on the product. They lost money on shipping. And they may have lost money on you know, import and export fees. Mm. I want to come back to that point you just made about this is why some manufacturers don't pursue reviews. Because I'm seeing this question on YouTube more and more frequently. It goes along the lines of, how come you slash other reviewers never review products from brand X? Right? And it's, it's, it's as old as time itself, probably. And I, I, I get tired of explaining it on YouTube, so I've just stopped because it just, it just goes round and round. But it, the, for me, there are two reasons. It's, it's number one, it's the availability of my time. So I can make maybe make 30, 40 videos per year, and you think there are hundreds of products that come out every year, so I'm going to pick, what, 1% of those to review, right? So that's, mm -hmm. that's from my side. But as you've just said, from the manufacturer's side, not all of them come knocking on my door. Very few do, in fact, which is great. It's perfect for me because I don't want them all coming, coming knocking because I don't have the time to give to them, right? And I'm already, you know politely declining offers because I just don't have a time. But some manufacturers 
just are not interested in getting reviews done and others are, are really interested. They want like this one and this one. So you, you get this broad spectrum. So I think viewers and readers kind of have this misconception that they should be, you know, an equal proportion of, <laughs> of reviews of every single brand out there when nothing can be further from the truth. Mainly, and it's because of people, isn't it? It's people behind these businesses. Some have very active PR or marketing people, and some don't even have a marketing person, and they're just quite happy to truck along with, you know, whoever they do get reviews from. Because there's the other thing: is some, like for example, I can think of several UK manufacturers who won't get won't solicit reviews outside of the UK, and it's the same in the USA, and it's probably the same in Europe because of those international shipping fees and import duties and VAT and things like that. So it's a very complex situation behind, you know, the answer that, to the question, like, how come you never review products by this, this company? You know, <laughs> I don't know. And, I don't know. And, and it goes even further. I mean, right. if you're a manufacturer and you are already back ordered, mm. you already can't fulfill dealer or customer orders, and you're looking at 90 to 120 days of delivery, Mm -hmm. So you're trying to manage all of that unhappiness that people have money in their hand, they may have made a down payment, and they have to wait. Mm. You don't want to review now. You don't want to no. generate, generate more demand than you can fulfill. You might have a similar issue nowadays in that you can't get the parts that you need to finish the product. Mm -hmm. So again, you want to sort of slow, not hot pedal inquiries because mm. either you have to turn them down or you have to qualify them and say, I'd be happy to take a down payment, but I need to also let you know that I can't promise you delivery in six months. Mm. If we're lucky, we'll get the part and we'll fulfill our obligation, but we have no control over it. So mm. it might be nine months. We, right now, we're not sure. Yeah. And right now, due to, you know, due to COVID and Brexit and now what's going on in the Ukraine, a lot of manufacturers have issues getting parts that used to be standard items. Now mm. they are back ordered or the price has increased where they can't afford to put it into this component. And mm. on top of all of that, ship fees have increased drastically. Yes. So yes. all of that means that a lot of these manufacturers right now don't need or want reviews because they would actually hurt them. They would create, create demand or inquiries that they have to turn down. And that's the last thing that you really want to do. You don't mm. want to disappoint customers that are ready to buy your product right. and tell them, sorry, please come back to us in a year. Right now, we don't want you. Mm. But it's, <laughs> you know, it's, Right it's, now, I think that's a big issue. But it's also something, I mean, I, I think sometimes people might assume that you or I have a, a working relationship with any manufacturer we choose to pick upon, right? And I can say nothing could be further from, from the truth. Like there, are, there are loads of manufacturers out there who don't know me. They've got no idea who I am, and I don't know anybody at that company. So that's why I don't review same. their products, right? It's just... Same here. And sometimes if I have an interest in a particular product from a particular company and I don't know anybody there, I might contact you or I might contact the colleagues at Fair Audio in Berlin and say, can mm -hmm. you give me the name of yeah. the email of the person that I need to talk to? Because if I just send an email to info at... I don't get any response and I don't mm. even know whether my email didn't just get stuck in some spam filter. Who is the person that I need to talk to? Mm. And then they give it to me and then I can see whether that manufacturer is interested in the review with six moons. And if mm. not, I can find out why. Don't they, they don't like my style. They don't mm. like, you know, what is it that is, that is preventing it?
And mm. that's also a, a useful piece of information. But by no means, even after 20 years, and even after have, running a popular website, I don't know, you know, a lot of manufacturers, and I wouldn't know who to talk to there. Right. I, I don't have a clue about, I mean, I was thinking about Rega recently. I don't know anybody at Rega. Nobody. Just, uh, I, <laughs> so it's just, Same here. you know, it's just one of the, uh, there are loads of brands like that. But I, I, I'm not complaining about this. So I've got to be very clear. This is not a grumble. This is just a statement of fact. So people understand why certain brands don't get reviewed. But I guess there's also the other thing, and I know I think you've written about this recently, is where if you find there's a company, they make a great product. And I'll give you an example, like the Denifrips Aries DAC that I reviewed last year. I really had to steal myself from requesting another one from the range because I liked that one so much. But I thought, no, I've got to spread this out more. I've got to do more manufacturers. So I, I can't do another Denifrips. But I would really want to do two or three if I had the time. I know you do this. I mean, you kind of go through ranges of things sometimes if you're really fired up by something, right? Yeah. So, well, you know, that's, this, actually, this actually explains why certain brands uh, are reviewed more than others. Mm. In the case of Denifrips, it was pure coincidence. A, a friend of mine in Switzerland had bought a Denifrips Terminator. Right. And that was at the time when hardly anyone knew who the company was. I had never heard of them. Mm. And he contacted me and says, Fredan, this is really a game changer. And he says, in fact, I'll send you mine. Right. Will you, will you review it? So that's what I did. My friend sent his personal unit. I reviewed it. I loved it. I gave it a, an, an award. Mm. I sent it back to him. And now that sort of put Denifrips on the English-speaking map mm -hmm. just by pure coincidence. Yeah. But because So now Six Moons and Denifrips sort of, they got intertwined at the beginning of the Denifrips export business. Mm. And because they were very happy with the review and the response they got because of it, it was natural for them to come to me when they had a new product. Mm. They yeah. had a good experience. I had a good experience. It was it was perfectly sensible and, and innocent that they would keep coming back and asking for more. And like you, I don't say yes to everything, but mm. a lot of times I will say yes because I have already done the research on the company to feel comfortable that they support the customer if something goes wrong. Mm. It's fair value. It's well-built. This terminate I've had already for four or five years. It has never broken. Mm. So... All of that sort of due diligence has already been done. So I feel happy to do another Denifrips product when one comes out. If I have another writer on team that can take care of it, I will prefer that just to, mm. like you said, to spread it around. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that explains why, you know, I've done a lot of Zoo and I've done, I've done some iFi and there's certain brands that you, I have done, uh, you know, quite a number of the, the Cube audio products. Mm-hmm. That explains it. And it explains why other manufacturers like Wilson or, or Magical, they, they have similar relationship with other magazines that they're very happy with. And yeah. they're very happy to go back there for seconds or thirds. The magazine is equally happy to accommodate them. So, mm. you know, each publication sort of develops this, this, um, this inventory of brands that, uh, that they work with a lot. And then there's other brands that they only work with occasionally. And then there's many, many, many brands that they have never worked with. Right. For no other reason than they just have never crossed paths. They were never asked. And they were so busy just filling solicitations. Mm. In your case, 30 slots a year, 
similar in my case. Mm. You know, maybe oh, you, I do. You do more than me. Come on. <laughs> yeah, right now it has slowed down, but only because people haven't been able to ship. Right. You know, I think I now have close to what twenty five previews, all of product that's been promised. In some cases, like a year or two years ago. Wow. And they haven't been able to deliver for no fault of their own, all mm. due to parts shortages. And I just found out yesterday that due to the war, uh, certain parts that people have been sourcing from America are no longer available. Those mm. same parts are now used towards the war effort. I don't know the details. I don't know what, you know, what they're used for, mm -hmm. but they just suddenly have become unavailable. And not every manufacturer is uh, mobile enough to redesign their equipment to use a different part that's available. In fact, I posted uh, a news or an industry feature on uh, Exogal. Oh, yes, yeah, I read about that, yeah. Yeah, and that company had a product and one specific part that they could not replace with anything else was unavailable. Mm. And for two years, they played the game of, you know, getting a little bit more money from the bank, trying to arrange, and eventually it just it just didn't work. Mm. Eventually, the, they they had to close their doors. It was because of one part. That's something that readers don't know. That's actually something that a lot of us reviewers very often don't know, unless yeah. we are close enough to the manufacturer that they entrust us with this information. Mm. And very often they ask us to keep that off the record. They just tell us, yes, we're having issues, and this is why. Yeah. You know, and the other thing that you mentioned before, storage space. As a reviewer, you only, you know, you're working out of your home. You only have so much storage space to actually accept equipment that comes in a big box. It might actually come in a crate. Mm -hmm. And while you have the equipment, you have to store that crate and those boxes somewhere. And if you have four or five speakers coming in within like five or six weeks, that means for a few weeks, the packaging of five or six speakers is in your house at the same time. Yep. So not only the speakers, but even the packaging you have to store, and soon you can't do it. So you have to now either say no to the assignment or you have to reschedule it. That's also something that some readers or listeners mm. don't think about. And the other thing is size and weight. Mm. If I can't physically lift something out of the box and get it safely back into the box by myself because my wife can't help me mm. and I don't really have neighbors, I can't accept the equipment. So I will not, I will never review a Dan Agostino amp that weighs mm. some 200 pounds. Can't <laughs> do it. And it's not because I wouldn't love to hear what he can do. It has right, nothing right. to do with that whatsoever, you know? And same when speakers get too big and heavy. It's not that I don't want to review them because I think they are not good. I just mm. can't. It's a it's a practical limit. And I remember in in, in Switzerland, the last uh, flat that we lived in, it had an outside staircase that went up three flights, and it had a turn in the middle. And so whatever was delivered was delivered down below on the street level, and I had to somehow get it up to the top of the third flight before I even entered the building. And so I bought what's called a stair devil, which is like a, a furniture dolly that actually. That they, it has three wheels on each side that keep turning while you're going from one step to the next, but you're still jerking on your back, just trying to get that crate up until you have it finally into the hallway. So all of those things sort of become limiting factors of mm. what a reviewer can accept. It has nothing to do with the equipment per se, 
uh, so that we don't like it or we wouldn't like to review it. It's just we physically can't handle it. Mm. Right? Absolutely. I mean, I've got the, the Klipsch Forte 4 here, and I need to keep them for a bit longer, but once the, once I have to rebox them, it's going to be an ordeal because even unboxing them was quite a challenge because they're super heavy. And I think I'll probably have to get, yeah, probably Olaf will help me do that because it's just... It, It'll be a challenge, yeah. I mean, these again, these are all champagne problems. <laughs> it's nothing. Yeah, that, they are. <laughs> I don't want to, but I guess I'm, I'm. I guess we're going into this not because we're complaining, but to just explain to people the whys and wherefores of why they don't see coverage of that brand, or you know, maybe more coverage of another brand. And it's also, in my case, a level of competence. I mean, obviously, I don't do vinyl at all mm -hmm. because I don't have a single LP. So that leaves out an entire segment of turntables and arms and cartridges I can't do. Mm. I used to like tube amps. I no longer do. I, I, I can still hear the things that they do that are nice, mm. but I'm now more focused on the things that they don't do as well. And since I can't overhear those, I no longer accept any tube amps because it wouldn't be fair to those manufacturers. So now tube amps are out of the picture. Even two preamps, I have a very, very good one. Mm. I still hear something in there that I no longer like as much as I once did because I own it. I mm. just no longer use it. So I will also not go after two preamps for the same reason. I, it would not be fair to a manufacturer if I'm basically now a dyed-in-the-wool transistor preamp mm -hmm. user. Right. Same with uh, electrostatic speakers. I have heard them. They're pretty large. Uh they would have to be pretty large in my room to sound, you know, to do proper bass. But there's something about them that to me is not compelling. So I won't go after them mm. and so forth. There are certain product categories that, um, that I'm not appropriate for. And then there also comes the issue of price, right? Uh, I, I can only go to a certain level where I feel confident that I know what's possible and that I have heard in, uh, enough things to know what's competitive, what's mm. possible. Beyond that, I would be like a fish out of water. I have absolutely no reference whatsoever to review a $150,000 speaker or even a $50,000 pair of speaker because that's not the ballpark that I play in. Mm. There are other reviewers that do this on a permanent basis. And that's, I think, appropriate if a manufacturer of a $50,000 loudspeaker now pursues those reviewers, those few reviewers that are happy and comfortable to sort of play in that range. I stay in a particular range that I'm comfortable with, and I don't really go beyond it, just because I don't think it's fair to review a product that I that's sort of beyond my bailiwick. No, that I makes sense. Yeah. You know, I don't know what it really should do. And if I reviewed a $15,000 or $20,000 loudspeaker, I should have at least one other one to compare it to, at least. See, that's the number one issue that I look at, that I could think of, right? I see a very expensive product come to market, and I think whoever reviews that has to have an equivalent product of the same sort of price category to do the comparison. Otherwise, effectively, you're just blowing smoke. Right, it's and, and you have to have the product on hand. Yes. It's not like yes, I heard this a year ago. Yes, but you have to have it <laughs> yes. in house today. Yes, and, and that most likely right. means that if you have reviewed it a year ago, you then must have bought it so that it's still there. Now, how many pairs of speakers can John Darko afford to pay for right. and own, and has has room to keep in his Berlin flat? Right. 
I've actually been thinking about this a lot recently about what, which ones I need to keep for comparisons and which ones, you know, I I could would happily just not buy. Um, but yeah, like it, just with the ex- expensive stuff, it's just. I think I was talking to I think I was talking to Lavonia about this actually. I think we were, we were talking about um, Vinnie Rossi's new amplifier or his range yeah, of amplifiers. Bravo. Yeah, right. So it's, it's what thirty thousand plus. Yeah, and I, you know when somebody reviews that. They really need to have another thirty grand amplifier of a similar sort of type to to compare it to 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 ascertain whether that thirty grand is good value at thirty grand, right? And even that's quite a limited compa- yeah, comparison, right? Of, it's, there's, right? There's two out of a possible you know one thousand different models floating out there, right? But having two, I think, is a is baseline. That's right? baseline. It's it is baseline for, for me. It is anyway. I mean, I know some people yeah. don't care about comparisons, but I think unless you do the comparison, you're not really telling your audience very much beyond. So that's why the yeah. only one of those new Vinnie Rossi's that I can review is the preamp because I own this previous flagship, you know, direct heated trial preamp. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you, this one is yeah. this one is based on that, but it's sort of now the next generation, the next ah. level. So that would make perfect sense. Okay, now for another ten thousand or five thousand. Yeah. You know, with a two or three year time gap in between, what has Vinny learned? What what do you get more? What don't you get more? Mm. Who's what type of listener would appreciate the difference? Who else would be just as happy with the older version? Mm. You know, that would make sense. But the other stuff, no, not really. For the same reason you just mentioned, I would have to have another thirty thousand dollar amplifier, and I don't. And I don't. I haven't really reviewed enough to even have sort of a faint idea of what that competitive yeah. level ought to be yeah yeah it's it's that is a again another <laughs> first world problem but it's still it's still relevant to the way in which we work and if we want to be useful to a, a readership or a viewership that's the, that's the least we can do i mean i i'm always explaining to, to the people that write for me is that you need a comparative hook it doesn't matter what the comparative hook is but you need something to do sort of essentially a versus b in the same space at the same time right not from memory or from something you reviewed 6 months ago or something you heard at a show because that's just bullshit but just yeah. you know direct comparisons side by side comparisons i'm crapping on a, about that quite a bit at the moment so <laughs> yeah that's yeah. my my current... hey, what that also means you know it <laughs> means that reviewers like you and i over time make some rather serious considerable investments into owning sort of uh, an inventory of hardware that we use as references in particular component categories at particular price points. Yeah. So, you know, you have at least one solid state preamp and one two preamp, and you most likely have at least one monitor speaker and at least one floor standard Mm -hmm. and blah, 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 you know, two or three different types of amplifiers, integrated, different cables. And so it goes. And all of that, I mean, even if you're getting it at a discount, which let's face it, you and I do, we won't pay full retail. Because there was there's, there was no dealer involved, mm. but it most likely is still going to cost us what a dealer would pay. So even if it's you know if if it's a ten thousand dollar loudspeaker and we only paid six thousand for it, mm. that's still six thousand that it's sitting there that we're not using until and unless we do a comparison with the speaker that we bought two years ago that we keep for this purpose. But most of the time, it's six thousand dollars sitting in some corner or some closet somewhere waiting for its day in the sun. And that's just like a, you know, like a, a contractor that has 10 different hammers in his arsenal. Mm. We have, those are our hammers. Yeah. 
expensive. I've made a point. <laughs> I've made a point over the years of collecting an inventory, but it's not cheap. But I think that's part of doing a a good job. Is that you need to be able to compare, and so you have to have certain references that sort of follow you around that mm. you can keep going back to. Yeah, and it also keeps you honest. Because if you don't have that, like everybody else, you assume that as time goes on, things have to get better. Mm. And so today's $5,000 solid state preamp from XYZ just ought to be better than the one that you bought five years ago, except you sold it and you no longer know. Mm. And if you still had it, you might realize that, well, not that much actually has changed in the preamp realm over the last five years. Okay, some different features. There's now a streamer built-in that wasn't before. The, re the remote control is now RF rather than infrared, mm. blah, blah, blah. But sonically, if I close my eyes, is it worth the difference? You can only know that if you kept that other piece, which means you have to have bought it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think I've only really, in the last couple of years, got to that point where I feel like I've got a good arsenal of gear that I can sort of switch in and out to do these comparisons and make my coverage as meaningful as I want it to be. Because you've been at it for, what, 10 years, right? Yeah, 10 years, but it's really, I mean, yeah, the last two or three years, because, well, I, also the, um, the move from Australia to Berlin sort of just obliterated everything. So I had to start again, you yeah. know, building up that inventory of gear. And it's taken me some time, but, um, but I, I'm always torn, Sujan, between having all the gear, because I, a lot of it has to live in the rack in here. And I, I don't like having a rack full of gear in my lounge, if I'm really honest. Like, I don't like the look of it. I know some audiophiles go, oh, look at all that gear. Isn't that great? But no, I don't. I'd much rather have a simple sort of low board. I don't have low boards anymore because the, the back panels resonate and they vibrate with the music. And I just got tired of dealing with that. So they, they've gone. So I've gone back to a rack and it's full of gear because I have to store it somewhere. Um, but I'd much rather a more minimal sort of aesthetic, generally. I mean, even mm -hmm. this treated room, like I would much rather have no treatment at all and have white walls and just the odd art piece. But it doesn't sound great in here at all. Like, terrible. Not terrible, but, yeah, not, not great. So, you know, what I want and what I have to do to do my job to my own sort of personal satisfaction or to satisfy my personal pride in my work you know, I have to make these heavy aesthetic compromises and also financial compromises because I have to go and buy, as you say, tools for the job. And yeah, it's just, just how it is. I mean, I had to convert one bathroom into uh, a storage shed because this house, unlike the last one, has absolutely no external storage, no garage, no nothing. Mm. And so the, the equipment that I don't currently have actively playing in the system mm. is sitting in, you know, the, the kind of, <laughs> actually not in the bathtub, but I, <laughs> I, in that bathroom, I set up the kind of um, um, storage racks that a lot of people would have in a workshop or in a garage for yeah, their tool. I, I, I know the ones, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just a very, a very limited amount of like boxes or at least the inside foam pieces for certain piece for certain speakers mm. I kept. So next time I move, I have some protection, mm -hmm. but I used to have boxes for everything because, you know, the last house that we were in, it had a three bay horse barn on the property that we had ah. keys for. So everything that came, I unboxed and the boxes went in there. And when I needed them again, I pulled them out. Yeah. But when I moved, all of those boxes had to go. They were all trash because I didn't have room for them, except for a very few 
you know, speakers that I know I'm going to carry around and I want to make sure they don't get scratched to shit next time we move. Mm -hmm. I want the original packaging, but everything else had to go. But I still, you know, the, the stuff that I don't use, the equipment that I will only pull out when I need to have some comparison, it's sitting basically in storage, not in a utility room, but in the bathroom that is only used for that purpose. Well, if I didn't have that bathroom, I couldn't have moved here. I, mm. you know, we would not have rented this place. Storage is always a big thing for us. And I don't know, I don't know how the folks like, uh, like Herb Reicher do it in, in, you know, uh, in New York uh, apartment or Ken McAuliffe, because I know those apartments are not that large. Mm. And they may not have even a basement with like a separate, you know, area where they can put boxes. So everything that they review and unbox, somehow they have to find room for those boxes, maybe in a walkway or in a closet. It can't be easy. No, it can't. It's not at all. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a constant game of Tetris here. I mean, yeah, I have a cellar from all my packaging, but if I didn't have a cellar, I would, I would be stuffed. I'd be screwed. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. Um, Srijan, we've been talking for two and a half hours. This is the longest podcast long. I've ever done. <laughs> um, You're going to have to edit a lot of it out. <laughs> oh, I, I might, I might split it into two. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. I think you know that might actually lend itself because the first part was sort of more technical, and yeah. then we sort of weird into you know the perspective of reviewing in a home. That might lend itself to like a separate part. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how I'll, I'll have a look at it and. Um... Yeah, but it's going to take me a while. But anyway, um, <laughs> eBay and thank you ever so much for joining me this afternoon. Thank you, John. My pleasure. You have been listening to me, John Darko, and Six Moons' Srajan Ebayen. This episode was produced by Nick McCorriston, and music came from Ben Pitt. <laughs>